Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to day two of the D3 Tech Summit. That stands for Decentralized, Distributed, and Disruptive Technology Summit. And the focus for today is highlighting and accelerating the first decentralized evolution. We got a lot to unpack. Day one was absolutely incredible. We really heard from some really cool people and seeing the comments from folks afterwards, people are really inspired and and learned a whole lot because, you know, the stuff that we're talking about is is pretty, pretty, it's a pretty big deal and it's pretty complicated as well. So we're going to continue to break down and unpack some of this stuff. Yesterday's focus was opting out of the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution essentially is this effort to merge biology and technology to bring about greater surveillance, centralization of power and control. That's not what these technocrats say, technocrats in the World Economic Forum and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all this stuff driving a lot of this technology. But when you dig beneath the surface, you quickly see that those are that's what the intentions really are all about. And so we want to counter that fourth industrial revolution. Again, it's all about surveillance, centralization and control. We want to counter that with the first decentralized evolution which will bring about greater privacy, decentralization of power, and more freedom. And can't go wrong with that. And just like the fourth industrial revolution, which has industries and sectors like drones and robotics and artificial intelligence and the internet of things and 5G interconnectivity, smart cities, that was already kind of organically happening slowly but surely, well, actually pretty rapidly, and the World Economic Forum, the folks behind the Great Reset, they want to just kickstart it and just really push it along and to grow it and accelerate it and control it and try to manage this organic innovation that takes place. So what we want to do is highlight this already happening decentralized evolution with encryption technology decentralized blockchain technology, decentralized internet technology. We're going to hear from Mike Swatek later about the D-Web. We want to highlight it, better understand it, and then explore what we can do to accelerate this first decentralized evolution, to throw a little gas on the fire, so to speak. So, let me give you a little overview of who we're going to be hearing from today, and then I want to share with you some of my thoughts on the topic. I want to talk about four different areas where decentralized blockchain technology can help to create more freedom in our lifetimes. But uh, today, shortly after my talk, we're going to hear from Brittany Kaiser, absolutely incredible human being who was a whistleblower who used to work with Cambridge Analytica, which many people are familiar with that scandal. There's a Netflix documentary and all sorts of press about it. She's going to talk to us about owning your data. She's part of the Own Your Data Foundation. And then we're going to have an awesome roundtable. Super excited about the roundtable today. We had a really solid roundtable yesterday. It went really well. Today, we are going to be doing a roundtable as well about decentralized and innovative technology for community building. Matt McKibben of Decentranet is going to be leading that roundtable, facilitating the conversation, and we're going to hear from a lot of really 
cool people on that. Then we're going to do an interview with Sal Mayweather, Sal the Agorist, about 3D printing. And followed by that, we're going to talk to Mike Swatek of the Decentra on the decentralized web and all that cool stuff. And then we're going to hear from our own Derek Bros, one of the co-producers of the Greater Reset and D3 Tech Summit. He's going to talk about opting out the pitfalls and the benefits of opting out of the matrix, which he knows a whole lot about. And finally, we're going to close it down with Max Borders of Social Evolution. This guy's a futurist, decentralist, written several books, put on some really cool conferences, and uh, he's a big thinker and a big doer. So we're super excited to hear from him. So let me let me share some of my thoughts with you ladies and gentlemen. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. I invite you to sub subscribe to our email newsletter, to join our Telegram chat, and to continue to participate with us. This all grew out of the Greater Reset activation, which took place in January, and it's ignited a movement of people that are staying connected and working together. And we're highlighting some of the work that they're doing with the People's Reset. You can learn all about that on the website after the summit wraps up. Okay. So here's what I would like to talk to you guys about. I'm going to point out four different ways that decentralized technology can help create more freedom in our lifetime. And I want to start by just sharing some observations that I've had. I have developed this consciousness or awareness of kind of having an understanding of where people are coming from based on what it is that they're saying and communicating and their concerns and what they express. And I've noticed in my activism, especially as of late, that there's a lot of people, that, their focus seems to be so much on the problem and coming up with so many objections and excuses as to why something cannot work. And I see this especially when it comes to cryptocurrency and blockchain, right? So there's this disparate movement of people that are concerned with the coming technocracy, with the greater reset, with traditional tyranny, right? Call them the liberty movement, the freedom movement, the prepper movement. Uh, there's like a natural permaculture movement as well. And everyone recognizes that there's a problem. But when it comes to talking about solutions, which is our focus with the Greater Reset Activation, hence the word activation, we want to activate people, people get all hung up and caught up. And when you bring, when you start talking about decentralized blockchain technology, and let's share some ideas about how this technology cannot be controlled and how it can't be shut down and how it liberates people here and there, people's first response is, oh no, that's bad, scary. I read an article, so-and-so said this, YouTube video showed me that. And it's almost as though they don't want it to work. Yeah, I was just chatting with somebody in the Greater Reset chat earlier, and he was just coming up with objection after objection after objection. Like what happens if the government bans it? Or what happens if we can no longer access the internet? And when there's just so many questions like that, it just shows me that there's a focus for some people and an emphasis on, on the problem. And what we want to do with this D3 Tech Summit is we want to empower people to participate in the liberation of humanity by leveraging whatever tools we have in front of us. 
Now, I understand why many people are concerned because blockchain technology is, in fact, being leveraged and utilized by the enemies of liberty, by the technocratic scientific dictatorship, World Economic Forum. An example of that is there's folks that aim to create a global digital blockchain identity. There's people that want to use blockchain to track who's had a vaccine. There's efforts to create geospatial controls based on tokens that are tied to your identity. If you lower your social credit score, for example, or if you haven't received your vaccine, then you don't have the token that enables you to engage in public transportation. This is all part of Agenda 21. It's why there's such an effort to undermine and diminish people's use of private automobiles because a private automobile affords you all sorts of freedom. You want to pack up, you want to hit the road, you want to leave, you want to move to another state because yours is becoming tyrannical. Looking at you, Californians, um, don't move to Austin unless you're cool and down with freedom, man, because Austin's turning into a little, little California. But it's clear that blockchain technology is in fact being leveraged for bad things. That being said, it's highly unlikely that blockchain technology was created and developed by the powers that be or the powers that wish they were or the cabal, as many people refer to them, precisely because blockchain technology, when it's decentralized, is essentially uncontrollable and it can't be shut down. And if this technology was put in place by the powers that be, then they really would have been doing themselves a great disservice because yes, blockchain technology is being utilized for much of the track and trace panopticon surveillance society control grid effort that's being put about. But I can guarantee you if it were not for the invention of blockchain technology by one or multiple Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever they, he, she, they, or them were, you can bet your bottom dollar or you can bet your bottom Bitcoin that all of this track and trace stuff would be taking place anyway. It already was taking place before the advent of blockchain tech in 2008, 2009. The, in fact, the Club of Rome has been talking about this Mark of the Beast stuff since the 60s and 70s in some of their papers. The Mark of the Beast was written in the Bible well before blockchain technology. Whether blockchain existed or not, a lot of these efforts to create a surveillance society would still be underway. Perhaps they would be less efficient. So here we have the creation of a technology, decentralized blockchain technology, where you can store information, where you don't have to trust a third party to engage in business, in commerce, in contractual relationships. Right? We have this technology laid out in front of us. And we can either say, whoa, that technology is used in some ways for bad purposes, so we want to stay the heck away from it. Or we can say, you know what, I recognize that I myself am a powerful human being that has the ability to enact great change in the world. And I see this technology and I understand that it can be used for good. So I am going to pursue the furtherance of that technology. I'm going to participate in this first decentralized evolution. I'm going to leverage this tool for my personal freedom and for the expansion of the freedom of my community because I believe in myself, because I'm not afraid, because I'm not going to yield control and power of this technology to the technocrats, right? Just like a firearm. A firearm can be used to protect your family. It can be used to fend off an attacker, right? It can be used for an armed uprising as we've seen in history, Firearms have been used for revolutions to overthrow despotic tyrants.
Usually new tyrants get replaced by those despotic tyrants, but nonetheless, and a firearm can also be used as a tool of robbery, of coercive control by governments, right? But the tool itself is just a piece of, of, of it's just a bunch of atoms and matter, right? It's just a tool. It's whenever, it's how that tool is used. And I want to tell you today that we can leverage these tools for the cause of freedom. We don't have to yield this bit of technology. Like Jack Spierko said, he closed us down yesterday. He was saying like, if, if we just ignore the tool and just let our enemies use it, then that's coming from a position of weakness. Strategically, we ought to understand and leverage that tool ourselves and use it better, right? So I want to share four different ways how cryptocurrency and decentralized blockchain technology can lead to more freedom and hopefully create a little bit more clarity for those that are still on the fence, right? Just first of all, what is a blockchain? A blockchain essentially is a decentralized, distributed public ledger. Public ledgers have been used all throughout history to maintain information. Oftentimes they're used for commercial purposes or for business. You have a third party like a bank or a government or a corporation like Visa and MasterCard that maintains a public ledger that says who owns what money, who sent what money, where and when, right? Early on, a bank had a public ledger and they would say, hey, it's kind of difficult to carry around gold and silver all day. It's not very practical and it puts you at risk to carry your wealth around. So you can store your gold and silver with us and we'll issue these paper notes, right? You can trust us to maintain the ledger that says you have this and we have this on in our bank. As we came to find out, as history showed that the banks were inflating the currency, just as they are today, the Federal Reserve Bank and the United States Department of Treasury maintains a public ledger, a ledger about the a number of U.S. dollars in circulation. And as they've been inflating the circulation after COVID, they are holding back some of that information. Well, the cool thing about this decentralized blockchain technology is it's the same public ledger, but it's distributed across all sorts of computers and nodes. And we don't have to trust Wells Fargo. We don't have to trust the Federal Reserve Bank in order to maintain the accuracy and legitimacy of that ledger. We can simply examine the open source mathematical functions that underpin this public ledger. We can understand the mechanisms and we don't have to trust any human beings or any corporation or any banks, right? And that's a very cool thing. And so this underlying technology of a decentralized blockchain actually enables a few cool things, different applications. Everyone's familiar with the application of money and commerce or currency, right? And the cool thing about cryptocurrency is it can't be shut down. Great example, in my own life, I sell Kratom, CBD, and Delta 8. If you want to try some out, you can click the banner below if you're watching on the greaterreset.org slash live. Helps a lot of people. Really cool product. Well, the federal government isn't very fond of it. In fact, they've tried to ban it. Um, the DEA tried to add to Schedule 1, even though it's just a plant, Kratom. We know that cannabis is slowly but surely becoming more widely accepted and legalized and decriminalized, but the banks still don't want to do business. So I had a bank, Frost Bank, a Texas bank, smaller bank, pretty cool bank. So I thought... And all of a sudden I get a call from the branch manager downtown that says, I'm sorry, we realize now that you sell CBD, so we're no longer going to be able to provide banking services to you. And I'm like, wow, my business is growing and scaling. And now all of a sudden I don't have a bank. I already couldn't accept credit cards or debit cards because I got shut out of Square. I got shut out of PayPal. I got shut out of Cash App. 
all of these services have banned me because I sell a plant. I sell the dried up leaves of an evergreen tree. That's Kratom. I sell the buds and isolates from a cannabis plant, even though it's legal, right? Well, it's legal in most areas. And so I got shut down. And when I got that call from the branch manager, I reminded her, hey, you know, this is why I've been into cryptocurrency for many years now, because there's no branch manager downtown that can shut me down. That's right. I can accept cryptocurrency. In fact, at one point I used this plugin that set up the invoice and it made it really streamlined with my point of sale WooCommerce. And this plugin was managed by a third party company. And even though it was a cryptocurrency plugin ran by a company, the company shut me down too, because they said that it doesn't agree with their terms of service that I'm selling this plant. Now, the plant Kratom is illegal in six states. Sorry for those states here in the United States. And that may be one of the reasons why they don't want to do business with anyone that has, it's illegal in certain jurisdictions. I don't know. But the point is, when you don't have to have a third party managing the plugin, when you can go directly to your customers and provide them with the public address for them to send cryptocurrency to, there's nobody that can shut that down. And I accept Bitcoin, I accept BCH, I accept Pirate Chain, R Métis, and no one can shut that down. And that's a very beautiful thing, right? When it comes to not having the government get in the way and stop you from things, WikiLeaks, back in 2011, they got shut down by PayPal, all their credit card processors, because the government didn't like what they were doing and the government leaned on these companies. They started accepting Bitcoin. They were able to continue to share and provide information with the public that was absolutely critical for understanding the corrupt nature of government. You can't shut it down. That's a beautiful thing. You can travel. If you try to travel with over $10,000 or you send a $10,000 wire transfer to another country, you can bet your bottom dollar that the IRS or the Department of Treasury or in another nation state, they're going to want to know what's going on and ask you why and tie identity to it and all sorts of stuff. If there's a $10,000 threshold, if you come in trying to do $9,999, the bank teller is taught to fill out a suspicious activity report. It's all part of the Bank Secrecy Act, right? If you try to fly to another country with $10,000 in cash, that's pretty tough to do. And if you get found out, they'll probably confiscate the money and go through all sorts of administrative hurdles. Cool thing about cryptocurrency, you can send over $10,000, you can send over $10 million, $100 million anywhere you like. If you use a private blockchain like Monero or Pirate Chain, no one's going to even know about it at all. You could even say, oh, I got all my life savings. I'm moving my family to another country. I know there's a lot of capital controls and currency controls. So I'm going to create this cryptocurrency wallet. I'm going to write down the recovery phrase. I'm going to memorize that recovery phrase. Forget about writing it down. I'm going to memorize this 12 word recovery phrase, or I'm going to create a custom cover recovery phrase. I'm just going to memorize it in my head. It's called a brain wallet. I'm going to delete the wallet program, tear up the piece of paper, and I can go anywhere I want in the world. And nobody's going to know that I'm traveling with $100 million to go do this or do that. It's nobody's business and cryptocurrency enables that. And it's a very, beautiful thing. Now, I want to express a word of caution. A lot of people think that Bitcoin is anonymous. That was this thing going around early on. It's not. There's certain cryptocurrencies that have public blockchains. There's ways around that to navigate around that. We're going to talk about that in our workshop, the crypto and privacy workshop that we're doing myself along with Matt McKibben, we'll hear from later, and Ramiro Romani, we heard from yesterday. Click one of the links below and the Greater Reset gets a cut of the ticket sales. We'll talk all about how to set up the wallets, how to do things privately. But there's cryptocurrencies like Monero and private chain, as we learned about yesterday, that will obscure who's sending, who's receiving, 
no transparency, very beautiful thing. So commerce is a great way that cryptocurrency can help give us more freedom. Another great way, everyone, if you're watching this program, you know, I don't know why, how my YouTube channel is still around, but there's been so many folks. Derek Bros of the Conscious Resistance, we'll hear from later. His YouTube channel was scrubbed. James Corbett's was finally scrubbed. All sorts of information is being removed by big tech, right? Well, what if I told you there's a decentralized blockchain technology called Library, L-B-R-Y, you can find it at library.tv, that enables people to put their video content on a decentralized blockchain that's immutable, which means it can't be changed, it can't be taken away, it can't be censored. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? In fact, the ultimate irony is there's folks that are so critical of blockchain. This woman, Allison McDowell, she does great research. I'll promote her research, wrenchinthegears.com. We invited her to participate in this event to present on the ills and pitfalls of blockchain so we can give you a nice, well-rounded understanding of the technology. She refused, of course, and instead she wanted to like say negative things about us and block us so we couldn't respond. But either way, I don't want to get into all that. But the point is she's hypercritical of blockchain so much so that she doesn't want to have anything to do with myself or Derek, yet she puts her videos on a decentralized blockchain and she shares content from a decentralized blockchain and she also complains about YouTube getting shut down. Right? I just bring this up because it illustrates a point that we have the technology that we didn't have before that can ensure nothing goes down the memory hole. The data is distributed on all sorts of different servers and nodes, and you can't go shut one down. You can't just say, oh, we don't like what's going on there, so we're going to shut down their hosting because we're Amazon and we're part of the Department of Defense Alliance and all that stuff. No, it doesn't work that way. It's immutable. can't be taken down. It's a very beautiful thing. And if you have some big expose about government or some huge thing you want to blow the lid off of, you can put it on a blockchain. It ain't going nowhere. There's other blockchains that allow you to do blog posts and articles and store information. And it's awesome. It's really cool. It's a great tool for freedom. Okay. What else? What are some other reasons? Decentralized finance. Been around for a while, starting to get a lot of exposure. As Jack Spierko was talking about, there's folks that need access to capital, right? You want to buy a house, you want to buy a car, you want to invest in your business. And oftentimes, in order to do that, gain that access to capital and liquidity, you have to go to banks. And if you're going to go to a bank, you got to provide this and your, your 1040 IRS form and your social security number and this, that, and the other. Well, decentralized finance and decentralized blockchain technology now enables us to do business with one another. You got a stash of crypto that's just sitting there. You can put it into a liquidity pool. You can put it up and people can can get loans based off of it and pay interest. And you can earn interest without having to have a third party that can come in and screw it up, manipulate this, tweak that, overcharge you, engage in usury. That's really freaking cool. Am I right? It also creates an environment where you can accumulate wealth, which is a very beautiful thing. You can accumulate capital. You can work your butt off. You can make some good decisions and entrepreneurial endeavors. You can accumulate capital. And that capital isn't going to be stolen from you through the inflation tax. Federal Reserve prints unlimited amounts of money. They've really been cranking up the printing press and the discount window lately. And 
you can store your money in a cryptocurrency. And not only that, you can store your money, you can give it to a liquidity pool for a decentralized exchange, for example, and you can earn interest. You can expand your wealth, which is a very beautiful thing. Not only that, there's decentralized exchanges now. If you want to trade this cryptocurrency for that cryptocurrency, you can do that. That's a very beautiful thing as well. You don't have to rely on a third party. You don't have to do your know your customer check or give over personally identifiable information so the tax man can come hunt you down. This is all a reality now. You can own shares in a company. How cool is that? And decentralized blockchain technology makes all of this possible. And the last thing I want to hit on about decentralized blockchain technology and the cool thing, this is what I'm most excited about because it's a big picture thing. I really like the big picture stuff is we can leverage decentralized blockchain technology in order to create institutions of social organization. I don't like to use the word social governance because the root word of government is govern, which essentially means to rule over, right? So I like to say social organizations. We can leverage blockchain technology to engage in decentralized consensus-based decision-making. So take the Freedom Cell Network, for example. We now have nearly 22,000 people across the globe participating. One of the things that we want to do is roll out a decentralized autonomous organization type application that enables people not only to engage in commerce and trade with one another and encrypted communication potentially, but it also enables us to make decisions on a wide scale. The Freedom Cell Network is providing a mass value for people getting together, gardening, going to the gun range together, creating a homeschool cooperative so they can take their kids out of public school. But we could take it so much for further. We can meet and fulfill the wants and needs of our fellow human beings by pooling our resources and then leveraging a technology like a decentralized voting mechanism. We can give it our own rules as well. Maybe it has to be total consensus. And if people don't want to participate, then they're just opted out of that program. And we don't have to destroy the cohesion of the group. We can just do like a, a, a decentralized democracy type thing where we only participate in that which we consent to. That's a very beautiful notion. That's pretty diametrically opposed to the way things are now, the status quo. We can do that with blockchain technology. We can pool money into a multi-signature address, right? And that address can only be unlocked when the participants, the people that pull that money, agree on what it's going to be spent for. So for example, the money's getting pulled up. We got some proposals on the table. One of them takes off. It's got a lot of popularity. The proposal is to take some of those resources and purchase a hundred acres on the outskirts of town so we can build the intentional community that we always desired, right? Maybe by then we've built out our decentralized finance institutions. And rather than having to get a loan from the bank, a centralized institution, we can get a loan from the decentralized finance institution. Very beautiful thing. We can use a decision-making consensus-based mechanism in order to release those funds without any hairy-fairy corruption possibilities. Super duper cool. To take it a step further, this is something that Samuel Edward Konkin III talked about in the New Libertarian Manifesto. What if we use some of those funds to hire a private defense force to protect us from private criminals and public criminals alike when we continue to opt out of the matrix and live our life according to our own ends? Decentralized blockchain technology can make that a reality. We just have to believe in it, not be afraid of it, understand it. If you have those concerns that many people express, I invite you to go dive deeper. 
There's a wealth of knowledge and resources out there about this technology. I understand very much that it's difficult to understand. It is complicated. There's some elements of it that are over my head and I like my brain hurts a little bit when I'm trying to learn it and research it. Right. I sympathize with my kids when I'm homeschooling them. They're like, this is too hard, dad. I'm like, I know, I know, I know that feeling when your brain just can't comprehend it. But there's information out there and there's folks that really like to simplify this stuff. And if you believe in what we're doing with the Freedom Cell Network and the Greater Reset Activation, I hope that you will have faith that we have done the work, that we have been involved in this community, in this movement, and that we see a lot of opportunity for the furtherance of individual freedom and collective liberation through this decentralized blockchain technology. Because again, we don't have to trust a third party. It can't be shut down or shut off if they don't like what you're selling or what you're saying. And it provides a lot of hope for the future. And so I want to invite you again to shift your mindset away from making excuses, trying to come up with as many objections that you can into one of a sense of empowerment. Because like I said, yes, the, the technocrats, the cabal, the powers that wish they were, they are leveraging blockchain technology to do some pretty sinister panopticon kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that we have to abandon it and just cede that territory. No, I think that we should double down and lean into the opportunity that decentralized blockchain technology presents. And it all starts with the mindset, believing that you are powerful, influential, and effective enough to enact change in this world, to take this technology, understand it, leverage it for your own personal freedom, and we all come together cooperating to leverage it for our collective liberation. All right, that's my little bit. We are going to play a short video and then I'm going to introduce our next speaker who we are super excited to have on board today. So just stick with us folks and we will be right back. Alrighty, we are back, ladies and gentlemen, the D3 Tech Summit. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our next speaker, we are super excited to have with us. She's kind of a big deal and is doing a lot of great work in the world. You may have seen her on a Netflix documentary about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and she was brave enough to blow the whistle on some of the problems that they were having there. We'll hear more about that. And then she stepped into recognizing those problems. She's participating in the Own Your Data Foundation, doing a lot of great work. Got to meet her the other day here in Austin, Texas. So that was super cool. And we are so excited to have Brittany Kaiser joining us today. Brittany, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for joining us. We're super excited to hear what you have to say and, and honored to have you. Absolutely. No, thank you for hosting this. Thank you for the kind invitation and thank you for 
gathering uh, a lot of radical bright minds together <laughs> because we need to amplify the voices of, of the people that you have here in order to make sure that as many people hear these ideas as possible and start to understand where it's possible to take our future. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Nice necklace you got there. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm messing around. Own your data. Cool. <laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna give you the floor and we're, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Well, so pleased to be here. Thank you everyone that is participating in the D3 Tech Summit today. It's great to see you guys and have the opportunity to talk to you about what I believe is one of the most important issues in the world today. We're talking about what the past year has been accelerating, what this uh, <laughs> quote unquote great reset has caused. I think one of the number one issues that we could possibly be discussing is the issue between humans and technology and ethics and technology and where that massive gap has left us so much more vulnerable than we were a year ago where we already had been spending so many years with the problems that technology has brought to the human race around the world, where those problems were leading us. And then the coronavirus shutdown comes and we have nearly the entire world leading a completely enforced digital life, producing exponentially more data than ever before. And already in 2017, you haven't heard this before, but I'm sure you have. The Economist came out and said that data is now the world's most valuable asset. It has surpassed oil and gas as the world's most valuable industry. So already in 2017, and now think about for the past year, when our grandparents, our friends, our children have been spending 24-7 on devices. Think about where that has led us today in terms of the amount of information about ourselves, our psyche, our lives that we are producing. Now, I care about this topic more than anything else in the world because of quite a few reasons. And I'll, I'll take you back to tell you a little bit more about my story, but what I really want to open this with is to let you guys know what the gravity of the situation is is that if our personal information currently makes up the world's most valuable asset class, how is this the only asset that's traded and bought and sold and invested in around the world where we as the producers have absolutely no rights to that value? If we look historically back in time at tons of different uh, populations who have been exploited for their natural resources, we look back on that in disdain. A lot of times you can think about indigenous populations where you know oil, gas, precious metals, stones have been stolen from their land. Eventually, we look back at that and we write the law, we write regulations, we change the way the system works to make that more equitable. But today, still mostly around the world, 
we are producing the world's most valuable industry and us as individuals don't get anything more than a free Facebook or Gmail account <laughs> for that. So um, we should no longer stand for that. And that's why I care about data rights more than anything else. I call myself a data rights activist, actually. <laughs> so to figure out a little bit more about where I'm coming from on this, I think it's probably helpful for you to tell you, for me to tell you a little bit more about where I come from, a little bit more about my journey and my story. So I started my career training as a human rights lawyer. So learning about individual rights how we and how we protect them. We usually protect rights through education and awareness of issues. We protect rights through laws and regulations by creating more rights and enshrining them in law. And you can also really help people achieve their rights by building the correct types of solutions. In many cases in my life, I've used technology to build those solutions to help people achieve their goals. And that's really where I came from. I, I only started working in technology when I was a human rights activist, I was a political activist, and I was trying to learn how to use technology in order to achieve my goals. So I started actually on the first Obama campaign. Um, I had uh, I had already had my first Bitcoins for uh, quite a few years and was following blockchain technology, was following encryption, was following the cypherpunks and thinking about, you know, how we can use data, how we can use advanced forms of technology to enshrine our rights to achieve our goals. And I ended up, being on the team on the first Obama campaign that invented social media strategy. So we were the first people to use data from social media in order to start putting together different types of strategies that would register people to vote for the first time, get people active in their communities, get people donating to support issues that they cared about. And we were breaking every type of fundraising goal, every type of attendance goal, anything that you could imagine, we were achieving exponentially by using new technology tools. And what I really saw was that, well, you know, using these tools is not just helping us achieve our goals, but it's helping people become more active and more engaged. And I saw this as a net positive. You know, you could call me eternally optimistic, which is what I prefer. You could call me naive, but I thought that using some of these tools was going to change the world for the better. And so instead of joining the Obama White House, I decided to spend my time traveling around the world, working with human rights organizations, NGOs, CBOs, nonprofits and charities, teaching them how to use technology tools to achieve their goals, how to get heard, how to get people to actually rally behind your cause and join you, create these communities, create people who actually were engaged and cared and showed up, really. So that was my passion for a long time. And I was studying as a human rights lawyer while I was doing this work. And once I got to the point of writing my doctoral thesis, 
I started looking further into the ways that um, larger global organizations, governments, militaries, how they use technology in order to achieve their goals. And what I mostly learned was that in order to do something good, which what I, I suppose through my research, what I meant by doing something good is being able to prevent war, prevent violence, prevent crisis. That's what I specialized in. Um, you know, preventing war crimes and crimes against humanity was really my specialty for about a decade. And the answer that I came up with through all of my research was the more data that you have access to, the better the data scientists are that are analyzing that data, uh, the better intelligence you have, the better you can predict something before it happens and stop it from happening. So I joined a little company called Cambridge Analytica, which you might have heard of while I was writing my doctoral thesis because no one at my law school could teach me about advanced predictive analytics. <laughs> so I wanted to go find out how you could employ these technologies for peacekeeping, basically. And the more I learned about it, the more I loved it and said, I have to figure out how to use these tools. I need to understand how to employ advanced data science in order to protect people. And when I joined this company, I learned a lot more about data than I needed to know for my doctoral thesis. And as a trained human rights lawyer at the time, there were a lot of red flags that started to come up the more that I learned. I learned that most people around the world have produced so much information about themselves that very accurately you could predict decisions that they were going to make. You could predict their opinions, their personality, what actions they would take before they take them. And that by and large, most individuals were completely unaware that this amount of information was being taken about them. And so the more I went along to learn about data science, the more I figured this is actually a problem with individual rights. Why do we not have the choice about how much of this information is being collected about us? Why aren't we aware? Why aren't we informed? This doesn't seem like informed consent. Now, to illustrate a little bit more about what informed consent is, uh, you know, can I get a raise of hands of people listening to this of how many times you've actually read terms and conditions before downloading an app or accepting cookies on your computer for a new website you've never been to? <laughs> I read terms and conditions most of the time. <laughs> and I bet you I didn't, you know, if I could see all of your hands, if we were in the same room together, there probably wouldn't be a ton of hands up. In my experience, I don't see a ton of people that actively engage with terms and conditions. But when you check that little box, when you download an app, you're actually signing a contract. And given that there's a lot of people here that care about their individual rights and freedoms, 
I'm guessing that you wouldn't just sign paper contracts all day long if someone walked up to you and gave you a pile of paper contracts. You wouldn't flip to the end and sign it, flip and keep signing it. But that's what you do all day long when you download new applications, when you visit a website that you haven't been to before and it asks you to click a big OK button and you try to get that box out of the way. You're signing a contract and you're agreeing to giving away so much about you. Everything that you care about, everything you're interested in, everything you engage with, everywhere you go, what you listen to, what you read, what you care about, who you care about. All of that information is readily available to be bought, sold, and traded around the world without your informed consent. And this is this has been a problem since the dawning of technology. For the past couple decades, technology has been built specifically to take away as much from you as possible, to take away that value and monetize it. And the less you know about what's being taken from you, the better for these companies that are now worth trillions of dollars because of how much information they have about you and me. So this started to bother me a little too much. Um, and I started to look into, you know, how could, how could we start to use technology to change this? As I said, I got interested in blockchain technology really early. Uh, one of my best friends was mining Bitcoin in 2011. So had my first Bitcoins then, started following what was going on in the industry. And I thought, you know, there are enough technologies that exist today that there must be ways for individuals to use technology that is privacy by design, where our data can't just be taken from us at the click of a button, where there's more of a process of us actually deciding what data we want to share or not, and to be able to engage in that in a consensual and ethical and transparent manner. So while I was still at Cambridge Analytica, I got really interested in blockchain. My CEO told me to shut up about blockchain technology, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up quitting the company. Not originally to become a whistleblower. Yes, I had had loads of issues within the company with red flags and thinking that they were taking more data than they should have. They were using data for things that they shouldn't. But I left the company because I thought, you know, data science will be the future, of course, but data science that is controlled by the few, where the many, all of us as citizens, don't have a choice about how our information is being used, that is not going to be the future. Because over the coming years, when people start to actually be taught about how technology works, they're not going to continue to be willing to give up this granular level of information about themselves. It's just not going to be the way that it works we are going to be in a situation where we have a lot more control. And therefore I thought blockchain technology is the future. Obviously data science is a part of that, but being able to encrypt and own and manage your information is where all of this is going. So I left Cambridge Analytica in order to go full-time into blockchain technology. I 
actually flew. The first trip I took after I quit, I flew to the state of Wyoming in order to work on uh, the first ever positive blockchain laws for the United States. Saying, well, one of the laws that we wrote saying, your digital assets are your intangible personal property. So for the first time ever ascribing property rights to our data, to our digital assets, to our blockchain tokens. So even though you can't see them, even though you can't touch them, you are able to own and control them under the eyes of the law. And nothing could be more important than that during a time where we increasingly are leading nearly a completely digital life and producing more information about ourselves than ever before. So it wasn't long after we passed those first laws about your digital assets being your intangible personal property that I became a whistleblower on my former employer, Cambridge Analytica, and a whistleblower against Facebook, who my former employer had a very strong relationship with and in general on how data had been used around the world for governments, militaries, political parties, private companies, and what that meant for our future. How has the data science industry become so incredibly unethical? How has the data industry in general, the way that it works, become a system that is doomed to fail? And what do we need to do instead? So when I became a whistleblower, I said, you know, you guys might be upset about one particular data breach, but you have no idea how bad the situation actually is. Most people don't know how big the data industry is, how valuable it is, and how it is completely based on being able to take as much from individuals as possible. So I started a campaign called Own Your Data. <laughs> in March of 2018, when I became a whistleblower saying the only solution that we have right now is for us to go forward with taking away the power from these big centralized companies and the governments that collaborate with them who are able to control us, manipulate us, target us because of the amount of information that they have. And they can continue to take this from us if we can continue to consent. But there are so many things that we can do to make sure that this is not the way that the world continues to work. And I'm supposed to illustrate what I mean by that a little bit more. It's helpful for me to explain to you the three different ways that I see solving the problem. Because they all really need to be done in parallel. Um, the first is education and awareness. The second is legislation and regulation. And the third is the development of ethical technology. So I'll, I'll start with first things first, which is education and awareness. It is so incredibly important that we bring up the next generation to not just understand how to use technology, but for them to understand how technology actually works. So I love how just before I came on, John was talking about 
alternative forms of education, homeschooling, some of the things that children actually need to learn. And for me, I started the Own Your Data Foundation specifically to make sure that children, parents, teachers, and anyone else that is willing to learn be taught something called digital literacy, so that you actually understand how technology works. When all of us were young, we were taught how to use technology. So we were given a computer and a keyboard, and we were told, hey, here's how you type out an email. Here's how you access uh, a web browser and ask a question so that you can get results. But no one ever told us, hey, everything you're typing is being recorded, and it's being recorded attached to you, so we know that you're the one that is searching for it, and that is going to be recorded and held in perhaps millions of databases around the world forever. And it's going to be next to impossible for you to ever delete that or take that back. I think if I was taught that as a kid, the way that I use technology, I would have used it completely differently. And then I would be much closer to having my data protected and be less vulnerable to being targeted by companies, governments, and anyone around the world that wants to get access to my personal information. So digital literacy is so important. Um, at the Own Your Data Foundation, we are partnered with someone called the DQ Institute, who have spent the past decade with a lot of the world's top experts from technology think tanks, tech universities, government departments of technology innovation and innovation activist groups, and all together, they have come up with this program that means a digital intelligence quotient. So DQ is just like IQ or EQ. It's your digital intelligence quotient, and you have a DQ score. But unlike your IQ score, it's a lot easier to, uh, <laughs> to improve your score with education and training. So what the elements of digital literacy actually mean are you know, how much do you know about your data rights or what they should be? How much do you know about cybersecurity protocols and managing your online digital footprint? Can you prevent cyberbullying or prevent yourself from being a cyberbully by being emotionally intelligent when you're online and using something called digital empathy when interacting with others? Do you know how to stop yourself from being addicted to technology? Can you protect your mental and physical and emotional health when using technology all day? How do you manage your screen time and, and take away those um, addictive, uh, unfortunately addictive designs that have been put into a lot of these platforms? All of these different elements are so incredibly important. You know, media literacy, so you can spot fake news and disinformation and hacking and phishing attempts. All of this stuff are things that we have not traditionally been taught, but we have to. So the education and awareness piece is very important to me. I do a lot of training and education, and I'm trying to make sure that parents who are teaching their kids at home have access to this, that schools who are teaching kids have access to this, and trying to implement this around the world globally. We're trying to reach a billion children by next year. So <laughs> cross our fingers, we can get there.
Secondly, on the legislative and regulatory front, I work on data protection and privacy law, as well as blockchain technology law. Uh, I have helped write and pass a lot of the blockchain technology laws that exist in the United States in cooperation and support with the uh, incredible legislators and Wyoming Blockchain Coalition in the state of Wyoming and help, uh, I think it's now 12 other states in the U.S., take the best laws from Wyoming that help govern your digital assets and help them make sense of that and implement it into their own states so that we can use new forms of encryption and blockchain and something that I hope some of you are familiar with called smart contracting, which basically is a digital contract that self-executes instead of a, a paper contract, where we are actually able to enshrine within the technology the types of rights that we want, who we're willing to share our data with and why, who we're not willing to share our data with, for what purposes it can be used or not, and then, of course, if it's going to be monetized, that we would get a dividend off of that, that we would get a portion of that. And so in law, in regulation, we're starting to move towards that. And that's making it easier for blockchain technology companies to be built, making it easier for these types of advanced and cutting edge technologies to be used and making that make sense to the government. Because as much as a lot of these technologies were built outside of the system, you have to make sure that governments don't regulate against it, that they accept it, that they adopt it, that they allow all of these companies to flourish without you know, hunting them down, which I think was a big problem um, before we started passing these laws in 2018, that a lot of people were afraid to build these companies and engage with these technologies because there were no laws or regulations that allowed it to happen easily. And so the last most important part is obviously building these technologies in the first place. What can we do to make sure that we are taking back our power from these centralized organizations? And in order to do that, we have to start using technologies that protect us and protect our personal information. So. As I said, I'm a big fan of using these types of cutting edge technologies and using them in a way that gives us transparency, that gives us consensual permission structures so that we actually understand what we're going to engage in and give away or not. <laughs> and that if we are going to give our data, that we can track and trace where that's going, that we know it's only being used for the purposes for which we agreed to. And if it's being monetized, this is what I'm gonna close with because it's so incredibly important. If it is being monetized, then we are going to receive a portion of that monetization. You might've heard it being called the data dividend by Andrew Yang or maybe Governor Gavin Newsom in California. I just call it, own your data, it's data ownership. It means you actually own that information. So if someone wants to lease it from you, someone wants to rent it from you, they'll have to do like what they would do if they want to rent your house on Airbnb. They tell you who they are, what they want to use it for, how long they want to use it for, 
you agree on a price, and then you hand away the keys once you've been paid, <laughs> right? It's that simple business model that I believe is the future of how our personal information will be used and governed. And there are a lot of blockchain technologies that allow you to do that now. More and more are coming out every day. So I spend a lot of time advising technology companies sitting on their boards or as an advisor on their data ethics you know, compliance team to help them understand exactly what needs to be done to proliferate these types of technologies where people are getting automatic token rewards or incentive structures to share their data if they so choose. Because this is the most revolutionary part about all of it, which is that I'll bring it back to the beginning of what we were talking about when I first started speaking, which is that data is the world's most valuable asset class. And it's made up of our personal information. So if a multi-trillion dollar industry is made up of our personal information, what we know right now is that every single day we are at minimum producing enough data to at least be able to pay for our groceries with the monetization of that data. Minimum, minimum, a couple dollars a day, which might not mean a lot to some of the people here, might mean a lot to some of you though too, but at least to the over a billion people around the world living on less than $2 a day, that changes their life forever. And probably for a lot more people than that. After this past year, when we're seeing record numbers of unemployment, over 30% unemployment in the United States alone, there are many countries around the world that already had more than that in terms of level of unemployment. So think about what this year did to everybody. We're thinking about the future of work and how people are ever going to actually protect their human rights, their individual rights, their basic needs. If we were at least paid for the data that is being taken from us out of our phones and laptops every single day, if we were paid just a small dividend of that, we could buy our groceries with it. We could cure extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined as being able to meet your basic needs, which is food and clean water. So by making sure that we protect our data rights, by using advanced forms of technology, by changing the way that laws and regulations work, by educating ourselves and making sure that we are using privacy by design technologies, and we're not giving away our data for free, we're only using apps, we're only using platforms that allow us to consensually and transparently share our data for token rewards or other types of incentives, that means that at minimum, we'll be able to take care of our needs. So start with a couple basic things. You know, you can, instead of using WhatsApp and giving your data to Mark Zuckerberg, you could use Signal or SenseChat. Signal's about to be able to start trading mobile coin within it. SenseChat, you can use Sense tokens, which trades to EOS. Uh, for your social media, you can use voice.com instead of Facebook which pays you for the content that you create. Instead of using Google Chrome, you could use Brave Browser and get paid in BAT tokens. You could use Big Token, which is just about to launch on Casper Labs, but you can still get your Big Token app right now and start earning those Big Tokens, which is literally just filling out a few questions and surveys 
and you can make many dollars a day doing that. You can actually go and buy yourself food every day with that. It's huge. It's revolutionary. It can change the world forever. There's no other policy proposal that exists that could cure extreme poverty so easily. Nearly everyone around the world has at least a basic device. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you want to know a bit more about me or my work, you can go to ownyourdata.foundation, which is my 501c3, my charity that works on teaching people digital literacy concepts. If you want to know more about my other work, you can follow me on social media at ownyourdatanow or at ownyourdata. My name is Brittany Kaiser. You'll be able to find me on nearly every type of platform. Yes, I still do use social media, shockingly, because I need people to hear this message. So again, thank you to John for inviting me. Thank you to everyone at the D3 Summit for listening to this. And thank you for taking action. The first thing you can do is start to raise awareness within yourself about what platforms you use every day, what you actually decide to engage in, how you decide to give your personal information away or not. And I highly recommend that if you start taking action within your own life and you start to see the benefits of that, share that with your family and friends, especially share that with your kids. <laughs> Please make sure that they are not giving all of their information away and that they actually have the opportunity to have more freedom than we have had in our lives because that opportunity exists. The next generation could, could and should have a lot more freedom than we have by using these exponential technologies to their benefit. So thank you guys again. Thank you everyone for having me and enjoy the rest of the summit. Hey, thanks so much for participating. That was great. I was watching the comments too. People were really digging what you had to say. And I especially appreciate the emphasis on the future generation. Cause I, I've been on Facebook since college, ever since it went from the Facebook to Facebook and they have a wealth of knowledge on my behind, but my kids, on the other hand, my kids don't even have social security numbers. So that's pretty cool. So they're got a leg up on us. And it's, I think it's, it's important to really pay attention to setting up future generations for success so they can kind of build on what we've started because it's going to, it's a generational struggle. So it really thank, is. Yeah. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, John, for having me. Have a good rest of the day, guys. All right. Keep up the good work. Thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was great. Own your data. It's super important and super critical. And if we're to opt out of this fourth industrial revolution and present this alternative, this first decentralized evolution, we really need to rethink the way that we participate with the online world. Myself included, you know, I always point out it's it's not going to be like an overnight transition to go from just an everyday programmed life to free thinking, consciousness, awareness of your own activities, and ultimately reaching a state of true sovereignty in the physical sense, but also in the digital sense. And so the best that we can do is just start making those baby steps. Hell, maybe if you're feeling inspired, go ahead and make a giant leap. But like 
Switch over to an alternative to Gmail, for example. Search on a different browser. Set yourself on Float, float.app, one of the social media networks that sponsored our, our program, you know? And I know it's a struggle. I try to use DuckDuckGo as often as I can, but the search is just a lot better on Google. So I still find myself typing in there on Google. Um, but there's alternatives and it's important that we that we use those alternatives and improve our lives and just take take those steps and then share those steps with other people. I'm gonna take a second to shout out some of our sponsors that have made this event possible. Bitcoin.com. Check out Bitcoin.com. It's a website. It is a really great wealth of resources when it comes to cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, but Bitcoin Cash and stories and guides and all sorts of information about other cryptocurrencies. In fact, there's also an exchange. They also have local.bitcoin.com where you can buy cryptocurrency. They have a casino. If you want to use the casino and you're in the United States of America, you need to use a VPN, but there's always ways around it. And uh, they have a great crypto wallet too. Super duper easy to use. And you can download all that at Bitcoin.com. They were generous enough to support our work here. Also, Autonomy. Get Autonomy.info. Get Autonomy.info. They put together this really sweet ebook with 16 different skills that you can use in order to improve your life. You can go there to download that. Essentially what Autonomy is, it's a 13-week course led by Richard Grove, who's an excellent researcher, amazing human being that's really inspirational what he's managed to accomplish. They have a great team behind this project, but you join the course. They do Friday and Sunday Zoom calls, and you just be a part of a community of people that are looking to improve their lives and really tap into the, the pursuit of excellence. That's what it's all about, being excellent to one another and living up to your full potential. There's a lot about marketing. There's a lot about business, entrepreneurship, success, improving human relations. And, you know, that this is all a space that I've been into a while, diving into the books and reading this and Tony Robbins that and Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And like, that's my obsession in life. But the thing that I was missing was a community of, you know, dozens and dozens of people that are all on that same page. And just being around those people really helps to maximize things. And then finally, I want to invite you to check out the workshop that myself and R Ramiro and Matt McKibben, who is going to be leading this next roundtable, we are hosting a workshop. It's going to be live May 15th and 16th. It's going to be all about cryptocurrency and internet privacy. So if you're a beginner, we're going to teach you why crypto is valuable and making such waves. We're going to teach you how blockchain works, but we're also going to lean into the practical stuff, how to set up a wallet safely and securely, how to acquire crypto, how to acquire crypto privately, how to send cryptocurrency privately. A lot of um, emphasis was on privacy cryptocurrencies that obscure the sender and receiver. We're really going to break that down during this workshop. Uh, Matt McKibben's going to talk a lot about decentralized finance. You can get cryptocurrency. You can stake that cryptocurrency. You can add it to liquidity pools. You can gain access to cryptocurrency capital through decentralized mechanisms. Really cool stuff. And then finally, Ramiro, who's a co-producer of this event, he is going to do a whole section on internet privacy, using a VPN, covering your digital footprint. So all of the cookies and the trackers and tracers and Mark Zuckerberg's not snooping around, following you around your every move on the internet. He's really going to lean into that. So that is, if you really want to get the practical how-to of a lot of the stuff that Brittany covered, he's going to teach you how to do that and also go into encrypted messaging and encrypted emails as well. 
So I invite you to click on one of the links if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or if you are on the greaterreset.org slash live, click one of those links down there and the Greater Reset will get a cut of the ticket sales. And again, it's going to be live May 15th and 16th, but if you purchase a ticket, you'll gain access to the replay of that for the next 30 days. You can also purchase a digital download if you want. I really think you're going to get a lot of value out of it if you are interested in taking that leap into the cryptocurrency blockchain world. And if you want to polish up on your internet privacy skills, then you definitely want to give that a try. Again, you can find the links down there. If you can't, don't have access to the links, you can go to cryptoandprivacy.com, cryptoandprivacy.com. Okay, folks, we are going to take a short little break and then we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to shout out real quick uh, one more time, Philip, who did a lot of good work to uh, put together all these really cool animations and stuff. If you want to contract with him, he is available for contract work. Just follow one of those URLs or emails down there at the bottom. Again, Philip with Creative Revolt is responsible for putting together all this cool stuff. So shout out to Philip all the great work that he's done. All right, without further ado, I want to introduce our next roundtable. Super excited to have this amazing group of doers. The topic is decentralized and innovative technology for community building. And each one of these amazing human beings is doing excellent work. I'm going to go ahead and introduce the panel and then we're going to hand it over. Well, it's a roundtable, not a panel. It's a roundtable, which is more communicative and easy flowing, but we do have a facilitator none other than Matt McKibben of Decentranet. Matt, how are you today? Hey, hey doing well. Just centering my face here on this uh, camera. Uh, doing well. Brittany uh, spoke uh, uh, right before me, so I switched chairs with her, and, uh, and now we're here. All right. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. Um, known Matt for a little while now, and he's just so connected, master networker, very positive guy, and Really excited to have you facilitating this. So thank you so much. And uh, also participating in the roundtables, Bill Ottman. He is the creator of Minds.com. 
So just like we're talking about owning your data, abandon the Facebook, the Twitter, all that stuff. There's great alternatives like minds.com. And it looks like we can't, there you are. Hey, Can, hey how are you? Good, how are you guys doing? Good, good, excited to hear more. Uh, you've actually built a social media platform that is a community in essence, a lot of really cool people participating on there. So we're excited to have you participating in the groove. Here we have Jordan Larson, he's uh, here in Austin, Texas as well. Jordan's a solar punk. We went to the solar punk summit recently. It's a really cool, diverse group of folks that are into technology, but also nature and hippie stuff and spirituality and techno dance music. And it's all about building a more sustainable world and respecting everyone's individual autonomy. And he's got an app that he's working on that we'll hear about in a sec that aims to do just that. And finally, we have David Casey of the Resource Network. He's also with New Mundo. And uh, what they're aiming to do is, is put together uh, a network, a community of people where they can do lending amongst themselves, like token-based lending. Really excited to hear about that and, and everything that he has to offer. So I'm going to go ahead and step out. I think we've heard enough from me for a lifetime, but uh, I'm going to let you uh, lead the conversation there, Matt. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, John. Uh, really a pleasure to be here. And I'll be... Uh, trying to prompt as many uh, ideas uh, as possible. So when John asked me originally to uh, to do this uh, panel or roundtable, I should say, uh, he he talked about like kind of the decentralized evolution. And so, you know, the first time I ever heard the revolution or the evolution will be decentralized, you know, it comes from uh, kind of the poem by Gil Scott Heron where he mentions the the revolution will not be televised, highlighting the fact that the centralized media networks in the 1960s uh, were not going to show the civil rights movement. Uh, and, you know, after that, I saw the kind of evolution of that phrase was by Dan Larimer uh, in, in BitShares and Invictus Innovations back in like 2013, 2014, where they say the revolution, or I think the better, the evolution will be decentralized. Um, so what I'd like to do is... Uh, uh, allow for everyone to kind of introduce themselves and why they're specifically passionate and what they're working on to contribute to, to the decentralized evolution um, and, and yeah, how they're contributing to these technologies. Um, so I, I can go kind of first, I, I run Decentranet, which is an advisory investment firm focused on uh, decentralized and transformative technologies. Um, we ad advise a number of different projects. We've done been doing it for three or four different years and throwing events like Crypto Psychedelic and Crypto HQ and Davos uh, and just all over the world. So um, I, I have been a passionate decentralization evangelist uh, since I learned about this kind of concept back in 2012, 2013. Um, so uh, let the rest of the people kind of chime in. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about why you're how and why you're contributing to the decentralized evolution. Uh, we can kind of start with uh, David Casey. All right. Uh, thank you, Matt, for hosting this. And thanks, John, for the invitation. Uh, so I'm here in North Carolina in Asheville. And we're on the ground launching uh, a new blockchain, uh, decentralized blockchain protocol uh, for business to business credit and trade. Um, so what this means is basically uh, the resource network any business um, right now just in the United States, but eventually globally, uh, can do direct trade with each other um, using decentralized technology, using blockchain technology um, outside of uh, fiat monetary systems. Um, basically, uh, yeah, doing, doing direct trade. 
Um, so that's what we're doing and uh, building kind of a envisioning and building a new monetary system from the ground up and definitely um, look, looking forward to connect with uh, businesses around the United States uh, that believe in self-sufficiency and uh, mutual support with each other. Thank you for hosting. All right, uh, Jordan, do you want to go next? And then we'll finish with you, Bill. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so honored. Um, CivilX is something that has been co-created by many, many people that share this vision. And for me, it was um, from living in communities and living in eco villages and seeing that this was happening all over the world and that so many different communities had different resources that they were really good at and kind of um, kind of had down to a fine point. And seeing that if we could share those different resources with each other, that we would learn so much and we'd be able to share things that we were learning about building or about farming, things of that sort. And so through my experience and background in media and tech and also um, living in community, I saw that there could be this great um, resource library, this sharing of these resources so we could build these communities faster and more efficient. And um, that always seemed like a great idea. Many people shared, shared this idea, but it wasn't until um, I started learning more about decentralized uh, technology, peer-to-peer, um, things like that that I started to see would really make something like this uh, really possible. And I got really excited. And just in the last few years, as this has been growing, um, so many people have been coming together and CivilX has really um, has really grown and is building itself up. The people are putting in the resources and the answers. So I'm super excited about what's to come. Yeah, I want to dig in a little bit more on like what it is and what the platform does and, and how it contributes uh, after uh, Bill goes, for sure. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is Bill. I'm a co-founder of Minds. We're an open source crypto social network. And yeah, we just rolled out a major integration with Uniswap. So we integrated like hold, holding rewards and liquidity rewards and all this kind of peer-to-peer -peer tipping with in, in like a direct integration with uh, Web3 modal and Wallet Connect, which is like a pretty amazing standard that's emerging for connecting Web3 wallets to decentralized apps. So really excited about that. And then, yeah, I mean, we're just trying to do everything basically the opposite of how uh, big tech is, is handling social media. Everything's backwards. And so we're trying to trying to um, turn the ship around. Excellent, thank you. I, I'm, I'm excited to dig in more on, on how you're flipping the narrative. Oh, and we have another uh, roundtable guest here, uh, Andrew Berkowitz. Could you please share uh, who you are and why you're passionate about uh, the decentralized evolution and, um, uh, and what you're working on to contribute to that? Absolutely. So my name is Andrew Berkowitz. Um, past uh, five years of my life uh, spent building a podcast company. Uh, built a whole portfolio of brands focused on emerging market tech and innovation industries. Um, that includes the Global Startup Movement and African Tech Roundup, where our two kind of flagship brands. And really dove deep into the all the issues surrounding the creator economy and the sovereignty that we started to lose as these platforms like Spotify, YouTube, started to get more and more powerful and individual creators 
uh, started to lose control. You know, there's these opaque algorithms, there's these, you know, opaque um, community guidelines. And as these platforms got bigger and bigger, it started to be clear that they were dishing these out in a way that it feels like they were honeypotted in as like the revolution. And then once they got scale, it's like, now, now we need to really think of ways to reclaim sovereignty back as individual creative people. And so that's where I'm super passionate about these Web3 technologies. And that's where I decided to start uh, my new company, which is called Social Stack, uh, which is a social money protocol. Uh, we're building on top of Ethereum right now. And what we enable is for creators to issue their own branded digital money on the blockchain and start to pro provide ways for their community to earn the money by engaging with the platform uh, and then concurrently providing ways to redeem the money. Um, so really what we're looking to do is allow creators to start to capture value in decentralized networks where they own the majority of the token that makes that um, work. And really these tokens act as standalone crypto economies uh, where creators can start to think of new ways to co-create value together, um, new monetization models, and new ways to capture value independent from the YouTubes and Spotify's in the world. That's what has me fired up right now. I'm super excited to be uh, here and on this panel with um, some like-minded folks. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. All right. Um, so I want to go back to the Civil X because I really I've heard a lot about this from uh, Angel Robinson, uh, who was the founder of the Solar Punk Festival last week. And so I'd like to understand what, how is Civil X uh, contributing to the decentralized evolution. What does it do? What are its features? Um, and 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 just dig in a little bit more because I didn't get enough. Uh, yeah, definitely. So my experience living in community um, was that there was this awesome thing that you might have heard of called a time bank. And within this time bank, our community and the surrounding farms and communities were able to exchange resources. And so it is a software that allows you like a social um, a social media to list what your skills are. It's for skill sharing, for resource sharing. What is it that you bring to your community? And um, to be able to post that, to set that out in a news feed and to see like, you know, I need help raking some leaves. Can somebody come and do that? And it would be an exchange of an hour per hour. And there's many reasons why they use that. Um, hours can't be taxed. You know, there's a certain freedom that we have with time. But regardless, it was a brilliant idea for sharing resources. And I still love it. And I saw that this, there was this huge potential for people to start making these trades on resources and specifically built around a template of what is, you know, building community look like and for you and for that template to be created by you and people who have shared values and then for a group of people to be able to drop those resources into a collective space and take care of each other's needs and so as i started to learn more about decentralized networks i started to see that that's what was really needed for um these type of ideas to happen and at the same time um some of the interactions, you know, can be upgraded and it can be easier. And it was really beautiful seeing how elders needing help could bring in the youth to do certain things and the youth could learn and trade things with the elders. And it was really bringing a community together. So I really wanted to take this idea and then kind of match it with uh, a Pokemon Go kind of style of augmented reality to where you could actually drop these resources at actual community gardens or in actual community centers and start to share and drop resources together. 
So that's kind of how that goes. And then also building templates that would maybe be in a virtual space where a group of people could look almost like a game board kind of zoomed out on what are all the resources that are needed in our community or to build a community. Where's our water? Um, where's our soil um, levels at? Different things like that that would help a group to kind of have a bigger view and a bigger picture of a project and how they would enter in the resources to create that. Really interesting. I think that plays a, a little bit into a lot of what David has been working on in terms of mutual credit and mutual things. David, how does that interact with uh, the, the resource protocol and, and kind of the mutual trade networks that you're uh, working with? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. So one of the most exciting things about what we're building um, with the resource protocol is the ability for any other community, any entrepreneur, uh, any city, um, to launch their own trade network or barter network. Um, so we're launching the first one here in the United States, the resource network, but we're also building the template um, for anyone to launch a decentralized trade network anywhere in the world um, and really create the connective tissue for a local economy to do um, trade and, and exchange value with itself um, without so much need and dependency on um, outside resources or outside monetary systems. Um, so it's really, uh, really exciting what you're doing, Jordan, and I look forward to uh, following up with you after. And yeah, I, to give context to mutual credit, um, mutual credit is a monetary term from about 100 years ago. And it basically means a group of people that are giving each other credit mutually. Um, so if you have a system where every business basically uh, enables every other business to spend on credit with each other, you actually don't need banks or what we know as money or dollars. Interesting. And and so there's no centralized authority that's essentially printing some sort of currency unit that you're then you know loaning more into existence, essentially, correct? Yeah, so basically the way that it works is the, the group of businesses and the token holders govern the network together. Um, so there's a decentralized governance process where um, Collectively, the community votes on how uh, credit is issued, um, how it's determined, and um, et cetera. Yeah. Is this, is this operated kind of like a DAO? I want to kind of dig into, there's like, I want to dig into what DeFi is for some of the people that have not uh, heard these terms before and, and dig into the decentralized governance structures as well. So like, does this dig into what a DAO is? What is a DAO? And, and how does that work? And how does that help uh, m manage these? And you guys can all interact with each other. It's not just me asking questions. This is a, a round table, like the, you know, the Knights of the round table. So feel free to uh, engage in that way. Um, what is a DAO and why does it matter for these types of, of structures? Decentralized autonomous organization, I believe. Yeah. There's some really cool stuff going on with uh, snapshot.org and uh, Gnosis. They just rolled out a sort of integration where so gnosis is like a multi-sig wallet and snapshot is basically like a signaling DAO. so it's not like a full on-chain DAO, DAO, but token holders can basically sign messages and vote with their with their tokens and so the the the, the collaboration between gnosis i think it's called uh, i forget what it's called um snaps something with gnosis but it's on rink on ethereum now so basically without gas fees, you'll be able token holders can vote and initiate and trigger certain permissions in the in the smart contract in the wallet. 
So that that's something that we're really looking at right now. I, I recommend people check out. Snaps, uh, what is it? Safe snap. Uh, Safe snap. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's a tool that 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 allows you to govern more effectively. Who, who wants to take the what is the DAO and and why does it matter in these types of things? What was the, I think the first DAO was uh, was the Bitcoin network, correct? Um, uh, which you know everyone was contributing to the Bitcoin network first distributed autonomous organization. What is it and how are these types of things uh, useful in, in building the decentralized evolution? Yeah, I think um, DAOs are super interesting and they're a kind of very early um, experiment. I would say like the um, evolution of decentralized autonomous organizations is at its very nascent phase. Um, we are, for example, building out uh, a DAO, but it's going to take us probably at least a year or two to get from where we are now to a fully decentralized autonomous organization. And in the kind of blockchain world, uh, I'll take my stab at it and then, uh, you know, you guys feel free to add whatever you want. Um, a decentralized autonomous organization is generally uh, governed by a group of uh, humans or otherwise entities holding. Uh, tokens, uh, cryptographic tokens, otherwise um, reputation, like a crypto cryptographic reputation that is not fungible, but is represented on the blockchain. Um, that is kind of a, a signal of the, the behavior of the user. So I think there's kind of two elements there, how, like how many tokens someone holds and what their reputation is in the network. And um, through those two elements, either or both of them, um, they can vote on chain for decisions that essentially um, often what it means is changing or updating the code of a smart contract that governs the protocol. Um, so you can think of it as uh, like a software product that has uh, like on-chain on programmatic voting um, where the community that holds the tokens or the stake in the network um, collectively decides how that software is updated. That's just one instance of a DAO. I guess there's plenty of other DAOs that don't have to be software products. Yeah, so yeah. software. And I mean, the way the way we yeah, the, real quick, Matt. So the way we think about what we're doing is essentially building open infrastructure for creator-led DAOs. Uh, and so when you think about like what so, like what NFTs are, what social tokens are, it's essentially ways to for creators to start capture value in decentralized networks where they have sovereignty over the IP, they have sovereignty over ownership in the network. And the goal of what we're trying to do is allow creator to start to uh, open up co-ownership to their community in the brand and in the broader you know, community and, and content that they're looking to build. And so I think a DAO structure will bleed over into every aspect of, um, every aspect of society, communities, creators, exactly what David was talking about, um, and I think it's very important that we build these tools open source because if they're if we're creating DAO infrastructure that's run on proprietary tooling and centralized tooling, um, we're essentially just creating new Web three gatekeepers, and it's just not it's not the point of what we're going for. And so, in in thinking of how we build the tools that we're contributing to the social money and social token space, um, we're pretty. We, we would say like we're open source maximalists because we think it's very, very important that all the infrastructure that's powering DAOs across the board uh, is open source and is something that anyone can view the code 
and fork and create a version for themselves. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I want to get Bill's take on that as well, because Bill's building an open source social network. Uh, do these all these tools have to be built as, as open source? They can't be closed source and proprietary. How, how do you feel about that? I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, you see, you see some projects, particularly I've seen some NFT sites that, you know, are basically completely proprietary and just sort of riding the coattails of, of the web three world. And, you know, people, I think, get into this fear mode when they work really hard on, on building a project and, you know, write a bunch of code and, you know, they're afraid someone's going to come along and steal their idea. And honestly, it's just, it's a bunch of unnecessary fear that is not productive. And, and there's all sorts of interesting licenses that you can use to sort of protect yourself to a certain degree. Like, you know, Minds uses the AGPL V3, which is basically a copyleft license where anyone can take it, do whatever they want with it, fork it, monetize it, but all the changes have to get shared with everybody, um, which is unique from a, you know, like Apache or MIT license where people can do anything and then make it proprietary. And actually, <clears throat> Uniswap just for their V3 uh, decentralized trading protocol, they're doing something interesting, which is a time delayed GPL, which some people are a little bit iffy about, but basically the code is totally open, auditable. But what they're saying is that you can't fork it for two years commercially. And but you know they're still abiding by the the principles of transparency which i think are absolutely crucial so so there are there are sort of many different options and you don't have to get into this mode of of worrying about people stealing your stuff i mean to be honest you want people to steal your stuff if people don't want to steal your stuff that's actually the problem <laughs> <laughs> I like that flip. You want people to to steal it. So is that in it? So with that license, I just want to dig in for a second. So they're saying that if you end up using Uniswap or if you end up forking Uniswap, they're trying to enforce some sort of delay of of uh, of competing with them with the code. How do how do they enforce that? How how do these software licenses? Yeah, work? I mean, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to to enforce, but like I think that they experienced. I think Binance forked V2 and they called it I I'm I'm not an expert on this but I'm pretty sure that Binance forked some of their stuff and you know they're a very powerful crypto company and they can just it, it, and from Uniswap's perspective they're not completely aligned with the philosophy of the Ethereum community and so they were just sort of trying to find a, a healthy balance between, you know, standard open source and, and protecting themselves. So it's like after two years, people can do what they want, but you know, that that's just one approach that I think is a little bit more on the protective side, but, and, and a lot of people when they're building projects don't even really think about the licensing and like the nature of the code. And I've been, you know, talking ad nauseum about this stuff for a few years to try to get that point across there because you know, this, this idea of transparency of, of code is just 
I don't know, it's techie and, and a lot of uh, normal internet users don't really have any idea what that means. But it, but it for for me the 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 web three is no longer going to be like I see it as you have your data in the center of the uh, of whatever application it is the platform itself doesn't own your data the you have your data and you can port it to whatever UI or application you kind of want to and then you can also you know withdraw your consent from that platform having any of your types of data is that something like similar to kind of minds and uh, you, you see happening with these? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what's really cool about Wallet Connect. And basically with Wallet Connect, like if you, if you land on Uniswap or Compound or Minds, now you can basically log into certain parts of the site with just like MetaMask or whatever wallet you want. And then that's all you need to get in we actually are sort of hybridized and trying to move in in the direction of like only requiring the crypto but the problem is like on DeFi apps you, people can't really like spam it and post content so we have like a little bit of an extra challenge which is why we still have emails but we're trying to figure out a way to have a clever permission structure so that people still can log in with only web three and, and have some level of access, but yeah, it's, it's really amazing. I, I totally recommend people check out, um, web three modal and, and wallet connect for like the login structure of whatever website you're building. Cool. cool. Um, so I want to dig in a little bit onto the decentralized finance tools as well. Um, so kind of start with, with I know David specifically, you're working on a very specific finance application. I want to ask, you know, we we have these centralized, uh, or, you know, credit bureaus, right? That essentially own all of our credit data, and they they own they own our credit systems. They're the ones. They're the purveyors of everything. How do you see? And before the whole group, and David can go first. How do you see? Our credit systems being decentralized and us owning those types of credit scores um, in the future? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating area of decentralized finance. And it's just um, in the past few weeks and months coming, like the technology is coming into fruition. And one of the things I love about decentralized finance is um, the open source ethos and the ability for projects to just build on top of each other. Um, you know, both vertically and integrate each other horizontally. Uh, so one of the things that we are working on right now is a decentralized underwriting and credit uh, determination and credit giving uh, algorithm. Uh, one of our partners is called Teller Finance, and that is a um, underwriting, let's say, um, protocol for uncollateralized lending on chain. So until now, um, most uh, DeFi lending protocols are fully collateralized by um, the need for a, a borrower to, to lock in cryptocurrency to take out a loan, um, which isn't really a loan, because when you think about it, a loan is when you're borrowing money, not when you put in more money as collateral. Um, so I think that this kind of breakthrough in the ability um, to evaluate credit worthiness um, on chain using uh, mainly oracles right now and integrations of um, 
off-chain and legacy world data um, is how they're doing it. But more and more, there's uh, data being generated from inside of these protocols, like Compound, for example, um, where you can associate the behavior of a wallet address um, with credit worthiness behaviors. Um, so the way that we're doing it is we're kind of partnering with some of these um, data sources, both off-chain and on-chain, and allowing our network of token holders um, to become the underwriters um, so that we are not underwriters, we're not a bank. Um, we're building a system for a kind of decentralized network of underwriters to participate collectively um, in evaluating the credit worthiness of businesses um, and staking, uh, staking against those businesses or for those businesses um, to underwrite credit lines. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating new field of decentralized finance that I think is um, so early right now. People are like really still at the kind of fundamental stages of figuring out um, what the building blocks are, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about the potential of it. What was the name of the project you mentioned that's doing like on-chain historical uh, reputation? So there are, uh, Teller Finance is the mm -hmm. one that we're working with. Um, they are using uh, different sources, both off-chain and on-chain. Um, but in general, there's more and more on-chain data available connected to wallet addresses from any number of protocols, mm -hmm. uh, which is completely open, right? You can just um, take that data and, and integrate it uh, permissionlessly. That's awesome. We're, we're, we've been integrating the matrix protocol recently, which is like a decentralized and federated end-to-end -end encrypted messaging system, um, which we've needed badly for a long time. So we're actually going to be rolling that out next week. And they have sort of in stark contrast to how Mastodon has been approaching moderation with just sort of this pretty like i would say like limited sort like the like mastodon will just shut off nodes um from communication and matrix is taking more of like a user-based approach to decentralized reputation so that entire nodes aren't just blacklisted from the network which i think can be pretty problematic from a censorship point of view so, and they have this whole like power level system where in different rooms, like anyone with a certain power le level can like grant somebody new up to that power level and sort of share the, this like these trust metrics to new users. So I definitely recommend checking that out too. I think we're going to be um, taking that really far because it's really difficult without surveillance and using like centralized ID systems and KYC providers to, you know, accurately figure out who is reputable and who can be trusted and who's not going to like run around abusing the network. It, it's a very tricky problem. Interesting. Um, and because they can't, so who's going to abuse the network, but they can't, they can't read what's being written on the network. Correct. Uh, no, no, no. All the rooms are, are encrypted. Yeah. Are completely encrypted. Cool. Um, Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So what other types of decentralized finance applications, um, are, 
are should people be know about currently in the, in their life when they're up and coming? They're you know starting to yield farm. They're starting. What are the top five decentralized five financial applications that um, that our audience here should be taking a look at in order to accelerate kind of their own sovereignty and their own abundance and their own uh, um, uh, yeah and their own tools? What are what are what are your top five picks? And if anyone can take the uh, the. I'll go. I'll go first. So yeah, the ones I use basically almost. Uh, let's see, almost every day. Let's say every week. Um, definitely Uniswap and SushiSwap. Um, SushiSwap for liquidity mining. Um, Compound Ave. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll leave uh, some some more names for other people today. <laughs> I don't want to take golf. <laughs> yeah, those are the good ones. Uh, we we just rolled out this like direct integration with Uniswap that I want to just quickly touch on. So basically, sure. when you stake, like, so you can stake into the Mines ETH Uniswap pool through Mines, and what we're doing is basically based on your share of the liquidity pool, we have this uh, boost slot in the sidebar of the news feed that rotates proportionally according to your share of the pool. So if you stake like 1% of the liquidity pool, your channel is going to get 1% of the promotion in that spot. And so it's basically like free advertising because when you stake crypto, you know, you're not giving it you know, you can pull it out at any time. There's going to be fluctuations in, in the tokens on both sides of the trading pair, but I'm really excited about that. So you kind of get this free promo in addition to token rewards. And I think that like what I'm looking for more so in DeFi apps is just like real world value in addition, like beyond just like token farming which is good and interesting but you know i think that i there's there's a lot of tokens for the sake of tokens with that isn't grounded in like something totally real so that that's what i'm looking for i would say <clears throat> yeah i mean for me like i'm solely a DeFi speculator so i'm not gonna uh, you know go too deep but i just want to kind of reiterate that we don't lose the narrative. Like I think a lot of that is happening with, um, you know, this, this amazing innovation that Uniswap uh, introduced into the world. And now I think PancakeSwap is like, uh, is doing more volume. And, you know, you can't, you can't DeFi if it's on top of something at Smart Chain or Neo. Like I, I, I worry that like, all because there's a lot of money being made like it's it's again like just losing the narrative of what we're going for here and so in my assessment of like DeFi like protocols and platforms like it's not just about like where can i get the highest alpha it's like what are the protocols and the communities that are actually aligned with with the values of what's happening there and those are the platforms i think we should all be really supporting uh and, and looking for so how do people how do people know which ones are actually being decentralized and which ones are the communities that are following you know these first principles um, unlike you know Binance Smart Chain how how can people understand that uh, for the audience? Yeah, I mean, it's, Dave, do you want you want to take a shot at that? 
Yeah, I was just going to say uh, MakerDAO is one of the most interesting projects um, in blockchain period. Um, and I think the, the best example of fully decentralized stablecoin, um, the way that I uh, understand how um, projects are decentralized, how their ethos is, is often by meeting the teams um, and you know hearing and, and feeling from them directly and then just hearing from other members in the blockchain community um, that I respect. Uh, how kind of what what they think of of different projects and whether they're more financially motivated or more um, you know motivated by values and mission. But yeah, sometimes it's hard to tell. Interesting. All right, so we haven't talked to Jordan here in a minute, and so I want to make sure he's getting uh, a little bit of uh, some time. Uh, Jordan, this was a question I guess from from the audience that's been brought up. You know, what are the, the augmented reality elements of Civil X and like how does that enhance kind of the physical world community building? And I think we can tie that into community building in general into this like decentralized evolution and how important that is. Yeah, I think just like what's been being brought up is how do we know that we're staying true to the mission and that these great and incredible technologies are actually serving our communities and, and serving us. And so um, the team and I have really chosen to hone in on the um, the importance of people being able to get out and get into their communities and to engage with each other because all of these technologies are great. And if they don't feed back into the physical and into our growing systems, into our families and into our social networks, then, um, you know, they can only they can only help us so much and so it was really important to us that we had certain resources and being able to unlock it you know we have a lot of gamified parts of our augmented reality to where you can learn something and you can educate yourself and then it would take you to a next gps location um, and so because of that um, it gets people out of their house. It helps people to educate themselves and then to go out and interact with their community and to engage in projects with their community. And in the game that we built and in the tools, you can't really upgrade. You can't move forward and move into more um, circles unless you're engaging with your community. So we've kind of built it in that way to keep um, to keep the focus coming into is this technology actually serving us in real life and letting the people use templates and community building and engagement to do that. So that's been a huge focus of ours is connecting humans, keeping that human story going, and then making sure that the tech serves these real life projects. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so important. The, the offline cannot be underestimated. It's honestly more important. And yeah, we, we've been trying to have like a whole live arm for live events. We, we did an event last year with uh, Daryl Davis headlining and we had like a bunch of creators having talks about censorship and privacy and all that stuff. And the more of that, the better. And in, in, in getting into bigger venues is really important. We have a, um, un unfortunately, COVID happened and Broadway got shut down, but in 2022, we're going to be doing a, a really big event in, uh, on Broadway. So I'll definitely let you all know about that. I hope you can all come, but yeah, that's the hard thing, man, to, to, to work on our addictions 
react to this stuff. It's, it's crazy. I mean, we're all just in our phones all day and that's, uh, that's not really the evolution necessarily. Yeah. And I think a lot of us being on our phones, you know, like definitely I am is about connection for me. It's about making connections with people, sharing resources. And I feel like that's what a lot of people want, you know, getting a response, getting a like, things like that really break down to that human connection. And I think it's incredible that we have the internet and we're able to share resources and connect and, you know, pump each up, punch, pump each other up over line about our projects. And then, um, you know, also being able to bring that back yeah yeah let's i agree the the community like these protocols these DAOs, these decentralized clients are all about essentially building community on underneath underlying technologies and the ones that are going to win are the people that are the best community types of uh builders out there um so maybe kind of i don't know if comment on how do you see the the best types of ways to build community um, in the next uh, next iteration of, of decentralized finance and, and uh, uh, governance? Yeah, to me, it's about building templates. So like a big one that we've used is the will of co-creation, which was developed by Barbara Marks Hubbard. And it has, you know, tech and health and science and art and education and economics and infrastructure and spirituality and all these different things. Um, there's a few more. These are like, um, you know, different guilds that build up civilizations. And for me, it's about putting these into a space where community members can gather their talents and their skills around these and then choose how they want to build their community. And these are some great templates that have worked well and help communities. But it's also very important to me that we allow people to upgrade these templates and build their own templates for what they need and really giving people the tools to build their collaboration templates. And I think that's uh, really big for community building is letting communities choose what their values and shared goals are. Yeah, and this also like points back to what we were talking about before of like if if we're building open source protocols, like what is what is the moat? And I think the moat in Web three is community, and the way to build community is to stand for something, and to stand for something meaningful. Meaningful, um, and that's what I think the most uh, like the projects that have longevity. If you look at what Tron did, Tron bought Steemit, and the Steemit community basically just forked said yeah like no uh and then just could continued on in a different direction like that that is the power of a community and uh you know lack of community that tron has <laughs> and so the the secret to community building is to, to stand for something and don't be afraid to polarize it's okay to polarize people because when you stand for something you're standing against something else and that's okay and it's important to kind of like hold true to those principles and over time you can build open source and the moat that's going to form around you and your governance token is going to be the culture that forms yeah that's so true i mean growth in a more ethical digital world is much more difficult i mean it can move really quickly when you hit network effects but you know because we're not spying on everyone and like sucking up all their contact books and just like growing as fast as possible, like most of the, the big networks did, you know, it, community building is, is a much more patient game. And I think it's really important to not 
get honestly too worried about numbers. Like I completely agree with what you're saying. Like you just, you have to stick to what your principles are and then that should sort of magnetize growth over time. But you know, this is like a multi-decade type of mission and it's not, it's, not going to happen quickly and i think it would be great if if some projects could could hit like hundreds of millions but it's you know it's not that easy so but but you can't like sweat too much about that yeah i i, I agree it's going to take a long time and it's not you know hundreds of millions of people using crypto uh or the same crypto app is something that you know we we envision all the time but uh, it takes uh, it has to be really easy to essentially abstract all this stuff and people are just using a software application. So I guess one thing I'll say is we're gonna have uh, some some questions from the audience. so i'll I'll say if people have specific questions for our roundtable members here, please uh, say them in all caps and we will get to them. I guess my one of my last questions that I have is kind of the visioning for the future of one. And so what do you see? that we can accomplish over the next like year, five years, 10 years? Um, how do you see this kind of lay, playing out, uh, this decentralized evolution in your mind? I'll, I'll, I'll take a first stab. Uh, I think that what's happening now is the very, very beginning of a kind of uh, fundamental shift in the economic and governance structures that are fundamental to how we as human beings operate in a society. Um, so, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, it's really difficult to say um, exactly how, um, how fundamentally this will shift the way that we um, interact and the way that we organize as, as a society. Um, and there's also kind of a contrasting trend towards extreme centralization happening in some parts of the world. So it's definitely not a written story. Um, but in the next like, you know, small amount of years, I think that more and more of the world's financial networks um, will shift to run on blockchains and more and more of the applications that we use um, to do things like process payments, loans, credit, um, all these sorts of things and even the kind of fundamental uh, structure of money itself will will start to run on decentralized open source software. And that's like just beginning. I think we're like the very, very earliest stages of it. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, you know, for all for for as hard as it's been the last year, it there's absolutely been a total breakthrough. Um, to critical mass in a certain regard, which is amazing. And, you know, every day I wake up and look at what's going on in the world, look at the markets and it's, it's wild. I mean, it is actually starting to happen and the it's, not, it's really just, there's, there's no signal that I can see that it's going to stop. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, some of the, the most integral, um, honest crypto projects really are taking off. I mean, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum, and that's just magical. I'm I'm so excited to be a part of it, and it's uh, 
it's uplifting, you know, cause we were all, we, we've all been doing this a long time for like the last 10 years and you know, we're, we're starting to get some momentum. Excellent. We have, um, we have some questions from the audience here, so I'll, uh, I'll try to, uh, thing, I guess one of them was, uh, what's your opinion on the lightning network technology? Uh, do you have any plans or existing, uh, we can just do that one there first. What's the, what's the, uh, group's opinion on lightning network. Um, is that going to be a, a scaling solution for Bitcoin? I was chatting with someone from, from their team a couple weeks ago about, you know, exploring some kind of an integration. I would love to have like a Satoshi reward system, like running in parallel to what we have, but I, I don't know. It, it, I'm, I'm surprised honestly that an app hasn't really taken off using lightning. So I don't know enough about it to necessarily comment, but definitely worth exploring integrations. I, I'll say that there's um, a, a company called portal, uh, get, getportal.co, I think it is, um, that's building a, a DeFi on top of Bitcoin uh, that's coming out uh, in the next uh, couple months. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how kind of the Bitcoin maximalists uh, try to build on top of their network versus um, some of these other ones. Um, yeah. yeah. Sovereign. Sovereign is also doing DeFi on Bitcoin and so is Blockstack. I think that they just rolled out a, a smart contract language called, I think it's called Clarity on Bitcoin. So they're trying. Absolutely. Um some other questions. Um, so like, what are the, I guess one question, this is more internet access, but like if inter internet access was taken away from us, how do, uh, how do we kind of fight back against that with decentralized technologies? What are the ones that exist to do that? Ooh, uh, I want to, yeah, take a stab at this one. So I think that decentralized mesh networks are super interesting and using, um, like token incentives to uh, basically incentivize people to set up their own nodes to run a mesh network. Um, there are starting to be some examples of this. I don't think there's any that are um, really notable as of yet, but I think that that kind of, um, that mesh, like a decentralized mesh of nodes, um, creating kind of a separate internet is a really, really interesting thing that, um, I mean, hopefully we'll see more and more of. For sure. Yeah. I I don't know if you all have tried out Scuttlebutt or um, Manyverse. This guy, Andre Stoltz, um, was working on it, which is like local mesh networks for, um, you know, parts of the world with, with no internet to be able to, to do stuff like that. And then what was that app? There was some like protest in, uh, I want to say like Iran. It was called Fire something. And they were using like Bluetooth for yeah, Fire Chat. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, does it? I don't think it I think I tried to download it the other uh, a couple of months ago and it it uh they shut it down. Probably worked too well, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh so all right, any other questions on here? 
Uh, just real quick, uh, with some of our backend and peer-to-peer -peer, um, plan systems is someone that we've been working with since the beginning, and they are doing some of the mesh networks between different communities. And so they're definitely doing some awesome things with the Unity engine, and that's who we're working with. So I'm excited for those mesh networks to grow. Yeah, it would be really important to have the mesh nets between communities that want to communicate that um, aren't reliant on kind of the centralized telcos for uh, going back and forth. Um, all right, well, any other final thoughts? We have a couple more minutes left. If there's, if there's a final thought to give the uh, audience and kind of say follow you know, where, you, where you guys are, where your projects are, what your websites are, um, and any final thoughts for the audience on how they can contribute to the decentralized evolution. I think it's super important. Um, something that was mentioned earlier um, by Brittany is the education of these technologies and what they're able to do, because I feel it's very important that um, people who maybe aren't in tech can learn about what these tools can do for us. People that are maybe in science or in architecture or things like that, because they're going to have different views on this type of technology than maybe some of us have. And I feel like that combination of more education to people who maybe aren't quite as tech savvy, you know, like I have a lot to learn also, but I feel like that's going to be a really powerful as these tools get stronger and more efficient, that it's important that we um, yeah, just educate people more. Awesome. Yeah, the education. You can get really deep into rabbit holes on 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 your own kind of uh, building these technologies out and using them. But then you go to talk to someone who has no experience and you're just completely speaking a different language. You're using all these terms that the language has literally been developed in the past six months. Uh, and they're just like, what are you talking about? I was at a wedding yesterday and that was uh, something someone was just like, I have no idea what you just said to me. Uh, uh, and so... Uh, any other thoughts from uh, you guys the last uh, couple of minutes? What would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, say that the our network, the resource network, is up and running since about a week ago. Um, so we are uh, actively inviting uh, businesses, freelancers, um, you know, any, anyone who works for themselves for a living, sole proprietors, um, to start doing direct trades with each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, resource network.co. So we'd love to see you there. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been great to connect with all you guys. I'd love to follow up, hit me up, uh, at Otman on mines. That's it. Sounds Likewise good. on my end. Uh, sorry, I've, I've been quiet. My, my went super, super bad. I think he got uh, cut off. He was saying his internet was bad and got cut off. So uh, socialstack.co uh, is the website. And if you're, uh, uh, you have a community or an audience or you're a creator and you want to create uh, a, a social currency uh, using his open source protocols, uh, go ahead and check that out. Uh, Andrew at socialstack.co. Yeah, am I back? Can you guys can you guys hear me? You're back. I just uh, I just gave you a plug, but go ahead. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I just want to answer, kind of give an answer to all the questions that were asked, which is like it takes individuals stepping up and 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 building things. Like that's the only way we're going to create the future that we want to see. Uh, and so like everyone in the audience, like it's you know if if 
you see things out in the world where like you want to fight against it, I would suggest instead building something, building a solution that um, makes that fight irrelevant. Um, and I think that bleeds through to all, all the questions that were asked, but really what we're looking to build and what we're looking to do with Social Stack is provide that tooling for creators to start to uh, take their sovereignty back. So if you want to go to socialstack.co, um, we've just launched this past week and we're going to start onboarding some of our first creators and community-based social tokens. Um, and connecting with me, I think Matt just said, Andrew at socialstack.co is where you can uh, reach out to me. I think maybe there should be a freedom cell social uh, token, maybe perhaps. Uh, <laughs> I think that's right. That's something I would love to help build. Um, all right. And Jordan, were you, has everyone gone? All right, cool. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. Well, I think we're at time or at least a minute or two before, uh, uh, really a pleasure talking with all of you today. And uh, I look forward to seeing this, uh, decentralized evolution happen. It's like everyone in the world is kind of focusing on these types of tools now. And so, uh, it's what, what we do with the technology, uh, that matters. Uh, because technology is always just a double-edged sword. It can be used for, you know, can be used for control or it can be used to free humanity. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. All right. All right Thanks, everybody, for participating. Thanks for leading that, Matt. That went really well. Super stoked to, to have you guys doing that great work. Awesome. Wow. Well, this I think this event is going really well so far. This is day two of the d3 tech summit which is all part of the greater reset activation uh, coming up here shortly we're going to be doing an interview with sal mayweather to talk about 3d printing which is all part of the decentralized evolution bringing back the power of manufacturing into our own homes which is super cool and we're also going to talk to mike swatek about the d-web so there's constantly questions that pop up, like what do we do when the internet goes down or if the internet gets taken away from us? So we're gonna talk about that. But I just wanna remind people like, there isn't really an internet kill switch and even like shut down all the internet. And even when in like dictatorial countries, they do manage to shut off access to Twitter, like in the color revolutions, for example, the people find a way around it always. So just always remain hopeful. And for people, sometimes I think people that bring up a lot of these objections are just looking for reasons for it not to work. I don't know, maybe because they don't understand it or they read some article that decentralized, that blockchain's bad or something. I don't know. But if the, for the people that are so concerned about the internet getting shut off, then I invite you to participate and take an active role in building the decentralized internet so you don't have to worry about that anymore. Just want to throw that out there real quick. All right, so uh, we're going to play a quick video to hear some information about the wonderful sponsors that have made this event possible. We strongly invite you to go support them, check them out, go to the websites. We'll be right back. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsors who helped make this event possible. Bitcoin.com, your one-stop shop for all things crypto. Whether you want to get your first wallet, buy or sell the hottest altcoins, or stay up to date on breaking crypto news, Bitcoin.com has you covered. 
Autonomy. Join navigator Richard Grove, along with a passionate community of like-minded individuals, for a journey of self-discovery that will help you to unlock your limitless potential. Their 13-week course is enrolling now, so sign up today at getautonomy.info. And we'd like to send a special thanks to Inescale. With over 15 years of experience in data management and hosting, Inescale delivers innovative and reliable cloud hosting and cloud servers for your personal or business needs. Here at The Greater Reset, we trusted Inescale with the hosting of our site, and they helped us to handle over 150,000 visits during our last stream. No matter how big or small, you can trust Inescale with your hosting needs. More information at InnoScale.net. That's I-N-N-O-S-C-A-L-E dot net. Thanks to Float Social Network. Believe it or not, there's still a place where you can share whatever floats your boat. No censorship, no data mining, no deplatforming, just wide open freedom. Join the network at float.app. That's F-L-O-T-E dot app. And finally, thank you to the Greater Reset Activation viewers and participants. We do this for you, and we cannot begin to express how much we appreciate your support. And now, without further ado, back to the activation. And now, without further ado, back to the activation. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, day two of the D3 Tech Summit, the Decentralized Distributed and Disruptive Technology Summit. Go ahead and share this stream with your friends on social media, preferably on Minds.com and Float, the alternatives to the big Facebooks and Twitters of the world. I invite you to join our Telegram chat group and also follow along on our Telegram channel. We very much would like to continue to build momentum and community with you. I also want to invite you to contribute to the work that we're doing. You can go to thegreaterreset.org slash donate, thegreaterreset.org slash donate. Or if you are watching on the greaterreset.org stream, there's a donate button. You can donate with cryptocurrency. You can donate with... Monero, you can donate with Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Bitcoin, and you can also bust out your old FRMs, FRNs, Federal Reserve notes, and donate those as well. Because if they're just sitting in your bank account not doing anything, they're losing value. So might as well put them to good use because we'll take them and we will utilize them in maximizing our events and our reach and what we can do. I want to remind you also coming up May 24th through the 28th, May 24th through the 28th, we're going to be doing the Greater Reset Activation Part 2, five days of inspirational talks, big thinkers, big doers, all geared towards activation. The last one was a huge success. We had over 150,000 visits on the website during the stream, and we hope to do reach more people than that. There's also going to be an event in person in Zihuatanejo, Mexico, which is a beautiful beach town. Derek Bros is going to be hosting down there. Last time, there's like 90 people that showed up. Everyone had a great time. There's going to be some in-person speakers down there as well. And this time around, we will be hosting an event in Austin, Texas. Technically, it's in Buda, Texas, just south of Austin, a separate county. 
Uh, it's definitely a lot more smile friendly down there, I would say, than Austin, Texas. So we are going to be hosting an event at this really cool venue and we're going to be having outings and events and workshops. Same thing with Zihuatanejo, Mexico. We'll be posting all the details about that, how you can get your tickets. They'll probably sell out fast. Um, so get them early as soon as we announce that, probably next week. Again, May 24th through the 28th is the Greater Reset. Two. All right. Without further ado, let's move on to the second section of our program. We're going to do in a couple interviews to talk about some decentralized technologies. And first, we are going to be hearing from Sal Mayweather, aka Sal the Agorist. How are you, Sal? What's up, John? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's always a pleasure. Sal's another fellow goose on the Unloose the Goose podcast. Hong Kong. Everyone's Check there. Unloosethegoose.com. But uh, yeah, I want to talk to you about 3D printing as a decentralized technology, part of this decentralized evolution. But first, let's chat a little bit about agorism and uh, what that means and, and what it means to you and why it's important. It's an important component of this decentralized evolution and pushing back on the fourth industrial revolution surveillance stuff. So yeah, go ahead and lay it on us. What, what is agorism? Well, um, you know, there's there's a ton of different competing definitions out there. Uh, to me, agorism is just a, a unique form of entrepreneurship that, uh, you know, we as agorists focus not only on profit, but also on disruption, right? So it's actually perfect for this, this uh, D3 Tech Summit that you guys have put together. But to me, it's really the principle, uh, the, 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 the really the philosophy behind 3D printing um, you know, there's, there's a great article by uh, an, uh, an economist from Oklahoma State named Perb Island, and he breaks down counter-economics, which, in my opinion, is synonymous with agorism, right? You can sort of use those terms interchangeably. But he breaks it down, and he says that counter-economics, there's really two parts to it. Um, there's sort of the, the, the creation of local production facilities, and then you combine that with peer-to-peer -peer voluntary trade, and then you have this really sort of powerful disruptive force. And that's sort of the model that Satoshi Nakamoto followed. It's the model that uh, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and ride-sharing services and now uh, 3D printing. And I think in the future, we'll see that same sort of model play out with things like tokenizations and, and such like that. So I'm really excited about it. I think it's the future. I don't think that any other um, uh, philosophy, you know, Sam Konkin died in 2004. So... We have had so much proof of Agora's philosophy since then. If you look at the, the advances that have been made from the Bitcoin white paper to the 3D printed gun, to all of the ride sharing services I mentioned, how many philosophies have been around for hundreds of years or not even longer that don't have uh, nearly as good of a track record? So I'm really excited for what the future is going to bring. I think it's only going to become uh, better and, and more powerful and more, more disruptive. Yeah, for sure. And I always think like, wow, if Samuel Edward Conklin was alive today, he'd be kind of blown away for by sure. really what's taken. And it's it's really cool to see this movement and this network of agorists, or as you say, agorists. I think agorists is the proper way to say, but maybe I'm just going to be a little, a little rebel, a rebel and just like Kratom or Kratom. But um, tell me, let's talk about centralization versus decentralization. What are some of the pitfalls you see in centralized systems and how can decentralization help to overcome some of these, these barriers to freedom and sure. autonomy? Yeah. Well, number one, trust, right? That's the big one. So uh, if you, any centralized entity has to sort of, uh, it's a trusted entity. Uh, I was just reading an article about an ex uh, a crypto exchange in Turkey where the guy, uh, the owner of the exchange just sort of took off. He disappeared, he fled the country, and 300,000 people, all of his customers, are left hanging dry. 
um, that doesn't happen in a decentralized manner, right? We, in a decentralized system, individuals are empowered and not institutions. And I think that's really the key. Um, you know, Bitcoin uh, empowers you to be your own banker. Um, 3D printing empowers you to be your own manufacturer and so on and so forth. So that's really the whole key is you don't you don't have to rely on a trusted third party. You know, just to know, I know you want to talk about 3D printing, but look at like Bitcoin is a great example of this because, uh, you know, we had these this banking cartel who was sort of... Uh, imposing themselves on the financial transactions of other people. But when we have a peer-to-peer -peer cash, like something like Bitcoin cash, we don't need that, that third party in there. And of course, those third parties are magnets for political parasites uh, to, like I said, to introduce themselves into our, our affairs. And I, I think that that's the key really is to decentralize away from those legacy institutions. Nice. Um, let me hit you with a question. We did a roundtable yesterday, and the title of the roundtable was Overcoming the Barriers and Obstacles to the Private Acquisition and Trade of Cryptocurrency. Sure. There's a lot in that title. Yeah. Uh, I know that you are a practicing agorist, and uh, you pride yourself in not participating in these coercive systems. So is there any advice that you could offer to people on how to acquire crypto privately, what to do with the crypto once you have it to make sure that it remains private and how you can use that to kind of to, you know, work your way around the man. For sure. Yeah. This is something that I actually have a decent amount of experience with. I've always used like these peer to peer trading, uh, trading sites like local.bitcoin.com is, is probably my favorite. I've also used others like um, local coin swap or local cryptos. These are great. Um, it's a great way to acquire cryptocurrency in a non-KYC fashion. It's a great way to provide crypto in a non-KYC fashion and, and earn a profit. The, the downfall is that you have to make sure you, you, that you use these escrow systems because if you stray from the escrow system, you put yourself and your funds at risk. And when you're new, um, that's a mistake I learned the hard way when I was new. I think I got burnt forever. You get a couple hundred bucks or something, but you learn that quickly and you don't make that mistake again. Um, that's probably the most important thing, uh, that, that I, that I could, uh, recommend. Other than that, like I said, check out local.bitcoin.com. I think it's the greatest app, uh, greatest site available for, you don't even have to just trade crypto. You can trade sort of anything for cryptocurrency. You can convert one crypto to another. So they're really very, uh, versatile, but you do have to make sure that you, uh, you know, you, you, you secure the transaction. And you do that with the escrow functionality yeah. on the sites. Yeah, you, you'll get some scammers who are like, oh, come on, let's just trade on the side and I'll just email you. And you, you don't don't play that game. Trust me. Yeah. And a lot of these sites also have uh, rating systems like eBay or Amazon, which is super effective way to gauge the potential risk involved. So I always try to go with someone that's done a lot of trades and has high ratings. Sure. All right, well, let's talk about most of this event has focused on decentralized blockchain technology, a good chunk of it and privacy and owning your data. But let's let's talk about 3D printing. Can you share why you think 3D printing is important in the decentralized evolution and your experience with 3D printing? I know that you operate a 3D printer store, 3D printer go burr. You can tell us how many R's it is exactly. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, three yeah, R's. Three R's. R's. Um, yeah, so, so the, the big thing is that this is the death of gun control, right? This is the, the end of gun control. The debate is finally over, and that's really the whole key here. Um, that's what makes it so powerful. Cody Wilson developed a uh, plastic spring, which enabled the first 3D printed gun. And from there, uh, these sort of um, 3D printed uh, 
design collectives like Turns Dispensed and Are We Cool Yet have really put out some amazing, amazing uh, designs. And the, the technology is really advanced and it's to the point now where you can make a complete firearm in your home without any sort of interference from politicians. And I think that's that's the key. So, you know, in World War II, U.S. troops had to drop in single shot liberators into France because of gun control. Now people can just get a 3D printer and do it themselves and the airplanes don't have to make the trip over. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's pretty revolutionary or evolutionary element of, of 3D printers. Can you kind of describe what a 3D printer is and what goes into using yeah. one? I've had one before and I didn't spend a significant amount of time on it, but it was kind of a pain in the butt. So maybe you could give us yeah. some beginner information on how to how to do it properly. So I've got a couple here to show you. Um, let me just move my camera around for you. So this is your basic under three model. Right. This is the sort of uh, machine that kind of ended the gun control debate. And uh, the guys at Deterrence Dispense use this machine to uh, sort of standardize all of their designs because it's so cheap and it's customizable. Um, I think you can get this machine for about 200 bucks. We still do get them in from time to time at 3D Printer Go Burr. But nowadays we, we really focus on the more up to date models like the V2. So this is your basic Ender 3 model. Let me just one more time, just real quick. This piece will come down, it'll lower to the bed, and it'll print the first layer for those who are brand new, and then it'll come up and do the second layer, and so on and so forth. Now, this one um, I have over here is a little bit different, and I made this gun just for you, John. This is a, <laughs> this is a, a resin printer. This is a new type of printer. This is a, an LD002R. Uh, this, uh, we, we also sell this at 3D Printer Go Bird, but this is a Glock 43 here, and you can see all this lattice work. These are support structures, which will just rip off uh, very easily. And then you, the, the post-processing, you just take a little, some rubbing alcohol, and uh, it'll sort of just wash away the goo. Now that, so that's the not finished version, right? I have to rip off the support structures. This one is the, this is a finished um, frame. And just to compare, this is a, if you, this is a real Glock 43. It's a 3D printed frame. You can tell it's basically the exact same thing here, right? There's almost no differences. And I'll even take the mag. Now, I, I have to get the parts kit for this and whatnot. But as you can see, it just fits right in there. No problem. So that frame will go for about $129. But you could get the printer for like 2 to 250 So two frames and you've already made your money back. So I think it's completely revolutionary. It's going to sort of decentralize not only just the firearms manufacturing industry, but the entire manufacturing industry, right? So like I've only spoken about guns so far, but this is going to extend it to every sort of industry, every aspect and every facet of your lives. It's going to get to the point where rather than going to a retail store, you sort of just go and download the files for a much smaller fee and you press a button, and when you get home later that day, the, the finished product is sitting on your, your Ender, your Ender 6 or your Ender 3 or your V2, whatever machine you have. And that's that's where we're headed. And I think that that's great because that, that means that these giant mega corporations like Walmart and, and Amazon are going to be less and less powerful, and individuals will be more empowered. So that really is the, the, the key selling point as far as I'm concerned. Wow, that's really cool with that the Glock 45 there. That's pretty sweet. I'm actually in the market for a concealed handgun, so maybe we should talk about that. Um is it so I know that the Liberator was like it was more of a novelty like a 
just kind of send a message. That was what Cody was going for. And it could right. fire once or twice, but then it wasn't solid enough in order to really be useful or practical. Is the new technology, like the device that you have there, that's going to hold up to oh, yeah. multiple, taking it to the range and, and using it in real life? Oh, nowadays they make, they, they put, uh, they're making all sorts of stuff nowadays. Um, you know, uh, AR lowers and, you know, Mac 11s and stuff like that. And they're putting thousands of rounds through these things and they're not having without any sort of failure whatsoever. Wow. With this resin printer here, I would, I, I would use a different um, type of resin. This is just sort of for show, but if I was going to actually turn this into a real gun, I would probably uh, use a different sort of resin called Soraya blue, which is a little bit stronger. And there's some additives you could throw in there to make it even stronger. Um, so yeah, that's just for show, but yeah, absolutely. These things are, are completely normal. They're completely, uh, powerful and stable. It's really a myth that you hear from a lot of people who don't know about, uh, the 3d printed world that, oh, you know, one shot and they're going to blow up in your hand. That certainly was the case with the liberator, right? You can maybe like, you'd probably crack a barrel or something like that, but, um, they've come so far, John, that, uh, you can make sort of anything nowadays. No, you don't really have to worry about that stuff anymore. Cool. So you've talked about how 3D printers have disrupted the firearm industry and really ended the whole gun control debate. And it's it's pretty funny to see the regulators and the Department of Justice and they're like all in a tizzy. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the cool thing is, even if they try to ban the technology, like that's one of the objections I always hear about cryptocurrency. Like, what if the government bans it? And I think people fail to recognize really the world that we're living in where like there is a large group of people although they're in the minority, that are working, spending their entire lives, even generations, to create like this despotic totalitarian government. And sometimes, even if something gets banned, that means we just got to lean into it. You know, and the cool thing with cryptocurrency or owning a 3D printer, it's like, sure, they could ban it, but the people will still resist. And at least now you have the ability to choose whether or not you comply, which I think is really something that's special that cryptocurrency and 3d printing offers yeah and i think this is where the whole crypto anarchist aspect of this comes into play because when we take these physical objects like a like a glock frame and we transform them into code we move that that sort of now becomes now it, it moves into the realm of speech and now it, it's it's governed by the first amendment which is much more difficult for the state to regulate so uh you know, once it's in code form, then it can be shared around and all around the internet in a sort of peer-to-peer -peer fashion that makes it almost impossible to regulate. So they can try all they want, but it sort of reminds me of like a fish out of water, just sort of floundering around. They really can't do much. Uh, they're sort of just gasping for air at this point. But uh, once Pandora's box is open, there's no closing that. You can't take a, a file from that's in the public domain and, and, and reverse that process, right? Entropy only moves in one direction. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's a lot of people that are kind of giving the government too much credit. Um, it was brought up, I think Jack brought it up that like the government's really kind of stupid and like wonky. I mean, they're good at killing people when it comes to war. They are good at that. They're good at seem to be pretty good at pulling off false flags, although a lot of people see through them, but it still has the effect that it desires. But at the same time, I think a lot of folks that are maybe just spending most of their time behind a computer and like researching and sharing articles, that's the limit of their activism. They feel disempowered and they feel like the government is omnipotent and 
and omniscient and they know everything and omnipresent. They're everywhere. And, you know, I had that sense back in the day, back in college, I used to listen to Alex Jones all the time. And I thought I was so smart and high and mighty, but really I was kind of like anxious and felt like the new world order was all powerful. But then when you switch your activism to more doing and like sending a cryptocurrency transaction, sending a private cryptocurrency transaction, 3D printing a AR receiver, right? Or printing, fixing a piece of whatever, your refrigerator that breaks with a 3D printed piece, that can be pretty empowering. What do you say to those folks that are just thinking the government's like, they're going to ban everything, they're going to control everything? What are your feelings on that? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that they're, they're you know, they can't even write a budget, these people. So, of course, it's, it's difficult for them to enforce, you know, these wide ranging laws. I think that it's almost a good thing, to be honest with you, that they have to, that they're becoming so desperate because it, it just shows how far we agorists have come. Um, you know, you see with this executive order that Joe Biden is passing surrounding 3D printed guns, and we just talked about how it's unenforceable. That, to me, is a good sign. That means that, um, you know, they're, like I said, they're gasping for air. And I think that that's how we win. That's how we beat them, is that we sort of take advantage of that. We keep pushing and keep pushing. And like you said, you know, uh, we have to lean into it, right? Push even more. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I would just say that they're not as competent as most people give them credit for. That's right. Yep. And the more you do and the more you live, the more free you feel in spite of all the controls and stuff. And that's, that's, that's sort of when it becomes agorism, right? Is, you know, that's what Sam Konkin said, right? Do or do not, there is no try, right? Like, like Yoda, um, you know, there is no agorism without action, right? Let's yeah. put it like that. Yeah, for sure. It is. It's all about action. Uh, what are some other industries that the 3D printer is disrupting? What are some other widgets that 3D printers can make that are really practical? Share with me like just some practical, useful stuff in your everyday life. But then what other things are subversive, like the 3D printing of a firearm? So I know people who use 3D printers for cars and for uh, rare car parts and stuff like that, or, uh, you know, little pieces of, of, of machinery that they need or plumbing parts, things like that. Um, and that's all well and good. Um, of course, you know, like I said, anything that that detracts from the corporations, I'm, I'm all for. Um, some of the other disruptive ways that people are using it, of course, is for like, um, you know, one of my favorite is probably in the medical industry. Nowadays, 3D people are 3D printing organs, right? So pretty soon, you know, if you, if you cut your finger off, you don't have to go to the doctor. You can just grow your own finger. I know it sounds crazy, but that's really, that's, 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 that's the road that we're heading down now. And there's people who have, there's doctors who have 3D printed ears and, and body parts in, in laboratories. And that's super exciting to me because, you know, today it's the ACF, but tomorrow it's the FDA and, and the AMA, the American Medical Association. So all of these things are exciting. Like I said, 3D printing will affect every um, aspect of the manufacturing industry. People will be 3D printing their own houses and their own cars and tables and chairs and everything you can think of soon will be uh, 3D printed. That to me is super exciting. We even start to see it now. There are um, designers out there who will have like a Patreon account or something like that where they'll come out with these really cool files, but you can only get them if you subscribe to their uh, you know, their, their service and stuff like that. So we're already starting to see it. I think that that's going to extend into, like I said, like big companies, um, Walmart style companies are going to have this, this ability to, like I said, download a file for a much, much lower price than it would take to go to the store and buy something. And they'll just spit out right in your house. And that's, like I said, that's, what's so exciting about this. 
Yeah, there's it's crazy all the changes that are taking place right now, and it's happening so fast too. People are also three D printing food. Um, there are uh, you name it, they're three D printing it. You can actually buy if you like a three a three D printer for that will make houses only costs about twenty thousand dollars. So we already see where that's where this is headed. Yeah, that's um, my girlfriend is way into eco villages and intentional communities and stuff myself as well and natural home building. And I think the first 3D printer was used here in Austin, Texas, and they're using it in this homeless community, this tiny home homeless community, which is a really cool project. Um, what do you know the name of the manufacturer that's selling them for 20K? Because that sounds pretty freaking. I don't cool. have them on the top of my head, but that's a great example that you just gave about um, with the homeless, because look how. Agorism and counter-economics is fixing problems created by the state, right? The the homeless crisis is created by these housing regulations, and it's being fixed by counter-economics. And I think that's really just a, just a beautiful thing. Yeah, and then people go out and they either like build these little micro homes or they three D print stuff. And the government is the government who they say that they want to help l limit poverty and end homelessness, but they're over there and they're like, you got to take that down because you didn't get a permit. For sure. Just to just to um, drive home the point of how sort of unregulatable uh, this this technology is, there's a there's a fellow that I, I know or that I, I've seen a few posts where he actually 3D printed a 3D printer using a 3D printing pen. So <laughs> uh, if you can do that, then really you know you can, there's no there's no stopping this this technology. That's cool. Uh, we have a. Question from the audience here. Oh, it looks like Pennywise the Dancing Clown right there. Uh, Mr. Jeremy says, how can we help? How can the average Joe get involved? Pick up a 3D printer. Get started. Uh, bottom line, just get started. Like I said, do or do not. There is no try. Just get a 3D printer. Jump in head first and start off with some, something simple like a, a Glock frame. Um, it's very, very easy to do and work your way up. Like I said, they have all sorts of crazy designs out there now. The FGC nine and, and two and uh, like I said, are we cool yet? Is putting out some great designs that they're working on. So start with the simple stuff. Get a three D printer. Start with the simple stuff like a Glock frame. I'd begin with an Ender three V two is the model that I'd recommend, or maybe even a CR six SE, which is a little bit more expensive, but it's very very uh, easy for beginners to get started with. With the Ender three, what you have to do is you have to sort of level the bed using these springs here. With a CR6SE, you don't have to do that. This will actually drop down and check on 14 different points on the bed, and it'll make sure it's leveled automatically. And the bed leveling process is the most difficult part for beginners. So that's why if you have the money, start with the CR6SE. Um, if not, check out the V2 um, or the Ender 6, which is like the sort of high-end model, sort of like the Rolls-Royce right now. Excellent. Great, great. Well, it's been super informative and inspiring. Uh, before we let you go, do you want to plug uh, your podcast and also let folks uh, know where they can go to buy a 3D printer from you and what sure, currencies yeah. they can use? Of course. Yeah, yeah. 3dprintergobird.com um, is, is the website. And I, one thing I should have mentioned, actually, is that we accept cryptocurrency, but we accept cryptocurrency for a very uh, specific reason. And that's because to purchase a 3D printer from anywhere else in the world, you have to use a KYC payment platform like um, PayPal, Visa, a bank, Cash App, something like that, Venmo. But when you pay with cryptocurrency, there is no KYC payment platform. So 3D printer go burr, 
3Rs.com is the only place that I know of that you can purchase a 3D printer without having to access a KYC payment platform. That doesn't necessarily mean that the transaction is secure. You still should probably be using a VPN and a coin mixer service like Cash Fusion or something like that. Um, but yeah, check it out and uh, pay with cryptocurrency. It's it's the best way to conceal your your or to protect your privacy. Awesome. What cryptocurrency do people use the most when purchasing from you? It's funny because uh, Bitcoin is about what fifty thousand dollars today or something like that. Bitcoin cash is about eight hundred dollars. I say the most. It's about half and half. Um, half Bitcoin cash, half Bitcoin. Um, there's still a lot of uh, USD shitcoin use, unfortunately. But we also, every now and then we get Ethereum transaction. People don't mind paying those enormous gas fees. So God bless them. But uh, I, I prefer Bitcoin Cash, to tell you the truth, just because it's easier to use and transact with. But I'll accept any form of sound money. And if you pay me with um, Federal Reserve notes, I'll convert that into sound money. So you know that it's not going to uh, fund a famine in Yemen or murder some child on the other side of the world. Right on. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your consistency. We're going to be hearing from Derek Bros later. He's a pretty consistent guy when it comes to agorism. And um, I know that's a challenge. So thanks for all that. And, and thanks thank for your time. You, I appreciate it. Right on, right on, right on. All right, all right, all right. People say I sound like Matthew McConaughey sometimes. If only he was as cool as me. Apparently he's running for governor here in the great state of Texas. All right. So that was Sal Mayweather talking about 3D printers. Again, the decentralized evolution. It's not just cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. It's bringing manufacturing into the house. It's any technology that disrupts or avoids or replaces a centralized institution where there's control and authority over you and you have to trust a third party. It's all about decentralizing and bringing that authority and control back to the people. It's also about encryption and privacy. We've covered all of these things. Now, our next guest, I wanna bring him up to, to talk about a common objection. I've really been hammering the cryptocurrency stuff lately. I'm, I've been in cryptocurrency for like eight years, but there's been like phases that I go back into it, focus on this, go back into it. And as of late, as I've been leaning into the crypto, I just keep hearing the objection. What if they shut down the internet and they're going to ban the internet? And, and again, like I said, it's like people like it's, they don't, they don't want it to work for some reason, perhaps because that'll reinforce their bias against it. I don't know exactly. Also, people are genuinely concerned and want to cover all bases. But you should know if the internet does get shut down or grid goes down or ban this part of the internet or whatever, then you're going to be screwed with going to your checking account as well. All that stuff is digital. It's also digital money. The fiat currencies, just the same. So might as well use a decentralized platform. But the real answer is this is what this is all about is empowerment. I think Andrew Berkowitz laid it on pretty strong at the end of that roundtable. He's like, rather than fighting against the problems you see in the world, let's just build something better. There's a classic Buckminster Fuller quote. Let's uh, replace the old systems and render them obsolete with alternatives, something like that. I paraphrase, but you know, for the people that are really concerned about the internet being banned or shut down, or you can't do crypto, this or that, then the, the appropriate response is not inaction or doing nothing, right? Or sharing articles. The appropriate response is, what can I do about it? And our next speaker is going to tell you just that. Mike Swatak, the pirate himself. How are you today? Hey, good. Howdy, John. Good to see you again. 
Are you having a nice day today? I are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're a crypto guy. You're an agorist guy. You created a agorist market, which is a great marketplace for people that are looking to engage in the counter economy, do business with like-minded people. They can list their business or service. They could also go there to find goods and services. And you also are a pro proponent of the D-Web. So let's just start by, if you could just answer for us, what is the D-Web? Okay. The, the D-Web, and I prefer to use Web 3.0 just so people don't get confused with a particular project, but Web3 or Web3.0 is a distributed internet that is able to go around the conventional systems that would provide for easy blocking. So you're communicating directly with other people in a or through a distributed network. Uh, through other people and their individual nodes, just like in society today. When you walk around, we're each individual nodes. You're interacting directly with other people. And that's kind of what it's like. And then, uh, then the other end of the spectrum is centralized where you're going through one node. And then there's kind of a continuum in the middle. Some projects call themselves decentralized, but they only have a couple of nodes. And so, or, you know, a couple of hubs, so they could be pretty easily blocked by, you know, uh, the powers who shouldn't be going to those couple of servers. And then as you go further through the spectrum, you get to some very highly decentralized projects that would be very hard to block, but they're not quite distributed because not everybody's a node. So it's, it's really, it's a continuum. But what we're talking about with Web 3.0 or Web 3 is that distributed end of the spectrum where it's very hard for it to be blocked or stopped. Awesome. All right. So that's a general overview. Can you dive deeper into how the internet works right now as we know it? I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings. And um, if you could just kind of lay it out in, in, in basic terms, or just some layman terms, how does the internet work? Because I know here in my office, I pay a bill to an internet service provider, but there's some steps beyond that. So if you could break that down for us, I think that'll help us to frame the conversation. Well, at its most basic level, the internet is just a communication protocol where you can communicate with other servers or even other individuals. Uh, and lots of businesses use it in that way where there's one server talking to another server. And that's what the state does is they're communicating that way a lot. So uh, they need it. They need the internet so they can communicate directly from server to server. All the large corporations that are in bed with the state, they need the internet. They, they, it would, you know, that would shut them down to not have it. So the internet isn't going to just get shut down entirely. So you have to look at, well, how is this thing structured and how do people typically use it? So mostly people use the internet, you know, they'll use it for email and things like that. And that's good. But for getting information, they'll be going to uh, through a browser and they'll be browsing to various websites, you know, website.com or whatever, some website name. And all of that is a, uh, a layer that's put on top of what's really going on because uh, what the internet recognizes are addresses. 
IP addresses, which is a series of numbers and dots and stuff that you're not going to remember, but you can remember these domain names. So there, there's a network of things called the domain name servers or the domain name system, the DNS, where when you enter in a website, it actually goes to a DNS to find out what that series of numbers and dots is and sends you on to the actual website on a server someplace. So there's this thing in the middle that is uh, a huge weakness for the average internet uh, browsing. You know, it's, uh, that's, that's what we have to be, I think, most concerned about. Okay, so DNS, this uh, middle layer, and that this DNS layer can be controlled and can be censored? Oh, yeah. Uh, if they decide they don't like your website or if some something happens, some event, they decide that, well, we really don't want this being talked about, they, they've probably already got the list. I'm sure you're on it and I'm on it. And, <laughs> and so they're going to one day, one night, whatever, flip a switch and all of a sudden, all the places that people go for good information, liberty information, anything like that that's against the state's narrative, basically, uh, can all be turned off. I mean, uh, you'll just go to that domain name and it says, you know, not recognized. And so that's a, a big threat. And it applies to any kind of domain name. In fact, even some of the actually distributed platforms like LBRY, uh, they have a website access point through odyssey.com. And it's a nice website and all, but everybody needs to keep in mind, well, you know, they could flip a switch on that thing and it's going to be gone tomorrow. So fortunately with LBRY, we have the LBRY app and the app will actually access all of that content you're used to seeing on odyssey.com, but it does it directly through the nodal network. It can't be stopped. And the same for producers. You can actually publish your content to LBRY using the app. That's what I do. So in the case of LBRY, if they shut down the domain name, it's really not a problem as long as you have the app already installed. Now, if you don't have the app installed, then you may find it hard to get it. Okay. And when you say they could shut it down, are you referring to like ICANN or federal governments that lean on the internet service provider? Like what institution would have to be the one to go in and, and limit access to the DNS? Well, they're all really in partnership with one another. I guess ICANN may be the ones responsible for the DNS system, but uh, basically, state actors, like in China, they block certain domains and things like that. So it can be done on a regional basis or a geographic basis, or it could be done completely all over the world. And uh, But it's state actors in partnership with these uh, organizations that, uh, you know, fulfill these various purposes. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I don't know all the all the specific names of them, but ICANN is definitely one of the big ones. The freaking state actors, man. Um, right. 
acting like they care about you when in reality they just want to control you. So uh, before we dive deeper on the D-Web and some of the technologies and tools that people can utilize in order to, like I want to talk to you about the IFPS or IPFS. Um, mm -hmm. What about VPN? So that's one great tool. For example, in the United States of America, there's certain cryptocurrency exchanges or cryptocurrency services that the owner of the company doesn't want you to do it in the US because they have a bunch of regulations and stuff like Bitcoin.com, one of our sponsors, they have an online casino, which is a lot of fun. And you can use Bitcoin cash and have some fun on an afternoon. Of course, the odds are still stacked against you, but it's all auditable. So at least you can see the code to make sure that it's a fair game. They're not you know, deceiving. Um, can you talk to us about VPN and the role that that plays in helping to kind of circumvent some of those surface level controls? Well, a VPN obscures your IP address, your address of where you're at. You're usually you're operating through a, a, a router and then it's connected to an internet service provider. And all these things have addresses and things, but you can send your information in an encrypted form so that it actually comes out the other end appearing to be from a different place. So, uh, you know, I can appear to be uh, in a, on a server in Iceland, you know, if I want to using a VPN. So that obscures your location, it obscures your IP address, uh, but it's not perfect and it depends on what you're dealing with. Uh, some VPNs do multiple hops, kind of like Tor does. Uh, that's a little bit better. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind with VPNs, they are definitely not all created equal. If you have a free VPN, you are the product. Your information is probably being sold. And even the paid VPNs, some of them are, are questionable because of their associations with certain companies and things like that, even some that are located in places that you think are safe, like Switzerland. Uh, that really doesn't matter. It depends on the company and their involvement with other institutions and things like that. So you really need to look into that. You know, uh, probably the best one out there, it's, it's one of the most expensive, but it's definitely one of the best, is Crypto Hippie. And Crypto Hippie is a very good VPN service. Uh, another one is uh, Robert Braxman has one called Bytes VPN. Uh, it's a small VPN service, but man, he's all about privacy. You can trust him. And that's very important in who you choose for a VPN provider. So, you know, those are important things to remember. There's a website called Privacy Tools. And that's what they do is they evaluate uh, privacy considerations for a lot of different applications and programs and things. And it's good to go there and see what they have to say about the VPNs that you might be interested in. What was that website again? Privacy tools, you said? Yeah, privacy tools. It's either .io or .org, I think. Excellent. Okay, yeah. great, great. Uh, okay, thanks for sharing that. All right, well, now let's dive into the the D-Web um, or the Web3, as you like to call it. So what exactly, how does that work and what tools are in existence? And I know there's like 
the beauty of it is it's like distributed and just like cryptocurrency, there's 6,600 cryptocurrencies and so many different blockchains. There's different distribution types and channels and communities and routers and Wi-Fi this and little node that. So maybe you could just kind of help us gain a better understanding of what, what the Web3 looks like practically. Okay. Uh, the first thing you want to pay attention to is well, how distributed is it really? You know, if it's a fairly new project or a project that really hasn't got its legs under it and they still only have eight or 10, you know, uh, nodes out there or, or hubs, which might be in the form of miners or servers or whatever. But if there are just a few focal points for all the communications, yeah, it's distributed. Uh, but not to a great degree. And, and, you know, the threat model we're looking at is state actors. You know, what's a state actor going to do if they've only got a few servers out there to go out and take down? Well, gosh, that's just a mop-up operation. So when it comes to the Web3, really what you're looking for is something that has a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hubs, you know, very decentralized or actually every single user is their own hub. And that's the best situation of all. So if you're using uh, uh, something like the interplanetary file system, uh, you know, you can access it without being your own hub, but you're probably accessing it through what's called a public gateway, like uh, ipfs.io, or dweb.link, uh, that's a domain name. Once again, that can be shut down. So really what you need is to have the uh, your access point be its own node. So that means if for interplanetary file system, for example, uh, you install IPFS uh, desktop or something, and then you have a browser that has the IPFS companion installed with it to access the IPFS nodal network directly. You'll be connected directly to literally hundreds of other nodes. And if you can imagine a big fishing net between you and the person that you're talking to way over there, and they're at where a couple of strings are tied together on that net, and you're over here on this end where a couple of those strings are tied together. Well, imagine how many pathways along the strings and connections in that net there are between you and them. They would literally all have to be cut. You would actually have to turn the entire internet off in that model to prevent communication between you and them. So that's the benefit of a, a fully distributed uh, internet or, or, or uh, system, you know, like IPFS. LBRY has a lot of, uh, has that uh, capability as well. Uh, when you run the LBRY app, you're actually becoming a node. You know, you can provide some storage space and, you know, so you've become part of it. There are other systems that are very highly decentralized, like the Bitcoin network with all the miners and, you know, all the people that have full nodes. Uh, with Bitcoin, I don't know how many people have full node wallets, but with uh, Pirate Chain, our 
having your own full node wallet on your PC is a fairly common thing. And the more people do that, the more decentralized it is, the more unstoppable it is. And, uh, you know, that's deeper into the Web 3.0, if you will. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. And can you tell me how someone would go about setting up one of these hubs? And then how do you get a website from the normal web, www, to this IPFS? Because I know that you've spent a considerable amount of time putting websites on IPFS, even agris.market is as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing. Uh, first of all, to set up your own node is, is pretty simple. You go to IPFS.io, which is the IPFS website, and install either IPFS Companion or Go-IPFS. Most people, not, not Companion, excuse me, IPFS Desktop. Install IPFS Desktop or the Go implementation. But usually you do the desktop, so you get the user interface and everything. And once you have that, now you have a full operating node with a unique ID, and you're connected to hundreds of other peers, and you're sharing in data storage, and you're part of the community. So now you need to use that somehow to communicate with. And that's where the IPFS companion extension or plugin comes into uh, play with your browser. Now, there is one little complication with all this, and that's Brave has a IPFS implementation, uh, which I really don't like because it accesses IPFS through those public gateways. So you might think, oh boy, I'm, ex I'm accessing the IPFS and the distributed web directly. But if the, route, if the browser is routing you through a public gateway like that, then uh, really you're, you're, you're fooling yourself. So uh, in order to make it easier, I suggest that people not use Brave for IPFS access and instead use something where it's not going to get confusing with you because of the Brave integration there you're having to deal with also. So Firefox is a good one. Uh, the Chromium browsers, some of them, you can go ahead and get the uh, IPFS companion uh, for those as well. It, on the IPFS.io website, uh, they've got information there. I think you can link right off the home page to the IPFS companion uh, implementations, and then you uh, go there and see what browsers are supported and install it. So it's uh, it's not terribly complicated. And actually, to keep it from becoming complicated, I think it's probably better not to do it with Brave. I just went through that yesterday with somebody, and we were kind of uh, getting our wires crossed because of Brave. Okay. What? Um, so don't you still have to go through your internet service provider, though, to even connect to the IPFS? Or does it bypass that and you just because you have the wires connected to a network? All you're doing is it looks, it just looks like any other traffic. You know, they're, uh, they could, I guess, using deep packet inspection and stuff like that, see exactly what it is you're doing. But it just looks like internet traffic. You're not asking permission. You're not doing anything special to go there. It's just like you started a, any other program on your computer that com communicates with someplace. 
and you don't really have to ask your uh, internet service provider for the information or the permission to do that. Now, some places, IPFS may try to start uh, filtering that traffic somehow, and I wouldn't be surprised if that starts happening, but there are workarounds because you can change the ports you're operating on and stuff like that, and I expect those kind of solutions to be coming along shortly where uh, people will be able to kind of move around different ports and stuff and uh, avoid the, you know, being blocked through the port numbers. Uh, but we are we are facing, you know, some pretty strong opponents out there. You know, uh, back in early February, uh, Robert Braxman, uh, well, I guess it was later in the month, but he reported on the fact that VPNs on LBRY, if you look into Robert Braxman's uh, videos, you'll see something about the Great Firewall of China has come to the USA. And, uh, you know, those kind of capabilities are out there. Uh, but all it does is cause people to look around and find alternatives, find the solutions. What are the workarounds? And, you know, there's a lot more of us than there are of them, you know, and a lot of sharp people. So the solutions do turn up. Excellent. All right. Uh, before we let you go, can you talk about what a mesh network is and how that works? And is that superior to accessing through these hubs or is, can you still do the IPFS through these hubs? What is a, a mesh network? Okay. Uh, a mesh network is uh, being able to communicate directly person to person without even using the internet. Uh, you can do it through Wi-Fi connections where somebody else is in within Wi-Fi distance from you, or if they're really close to you, you can go through Bluetooth, and then your message maybe to a third party gets passed through uh, somebody that you've bumped into. So it's just like you're walking around out there on the street, you bump into somebody, you talk to them, you ask them to pass a message on to your friend because you know they're going to see them later that day. And, and that's kind of the way it works. And then if you have an internet connection on any of those nodes, then that can be used as a, a, a pathway to people that are further away. And uh, Briar is a good mesh net. Uh, that one's one that is pretty well developed. Only issue with Briar is it only works on Android. Uh, it doesn't have a, well, I guess there's a patch where you can run it on Linux, but it doesn't work on Windows or Apple or any of those. Uh, another one that's a, a lot less developed uh, that was mentioned earlier today is Scuttlebutt. It's the secure SSB, secure Scuttlebutt. And it's a platform or a protocol, and they have a lot of uh, different pr programs that are used, kind of like the matrix network, where you've got different programs that use the matrix network. Well, there are different programs that use the Scuttlebutt network, and it works as a mesh network very well. Uh, but its implementation... Uh, to other places through the internet requires somebody to set up a, a thing they call a pub, which is basically a server somewhere that acts as a conduit. And people join your pub. And then what that does, it lets other people who are in your pub 
communicate directly through the pub, even though you may not be close enough for Wi-Fi or Bluetooth communications. And I've played with it. I like it. Uh, getting a pub set up was a, a little bit complicated, but I expect they're going to make that more friendly. And it's a good, it's a good protocol. Now, I didn't mention the websites to IPFS thing yet, uh, or talk about it much yet. The, uh, the it can be challenging. It depends on the website. If the website is a purely HTML, that's hypertext, meta language, static, flat, whatever website, uh, all you have to do is copy the folder that contains the website to IPFS. It gives you an address, and voila, your website is on the internet. It's a little more complicated than that, but not much. Uh, if the website has external content, like audios, videos, and stuff like that that are not contained within it, uh, those links could be broken if you lose access to the internet. So uh, there's some additional things you have to do to bring those within the site before you publish them. Uh, and I've been, actually, that's been one of the focuses of my work lately is, is figuring that out. But more importantly, most people these days use WordPress for websites because it's easy, and it is. But uh, web, websites created with WordPress and other content management systems like Joomla and Drupal and stuff, uh, it's driven by a database. So when you look at a web page for the first time, or any time, it didn't exist before. It's created right then on the fly, dynamically by the server. So uh, it's not a static thing. So now if you decide, well, if I want to put it on IPFS, it has to be converted to something that is static, which is HTML. So every time you get ready to publish to IPFS, you have to do a lot of importing and converting, and then if the website's not well-behaved and has a bunch of script and external links and things, uh, there's a bit of manipulation that's required there that can get pretty challenging. So uh, it's an emerging area. Uh, when I started the Web3-only podcast, uh, there was another project that had been kind of dormant for a while that Ernest Hancock had been running called the Pirate Box Project. And then all of a sudden now it's gotten active and I'm kind of, I'm working with those guys and, you know, sharing resources and, you know, talent and everything. And uh, so it's really kind of exciting. You know, there's a lot more people involved now. Uh, there's a lot of focus on this. Uh, there are several websites already on the website linked from the IPFS website directory uh, that's on my Web3 only uh, website. And that website is only on IPFS, but you can also access it if you go to LBRY, where I also publish at, and just do a search for Web3 only, or, or on odyssey.com. But uh, getting websites onto IPFS is very important because if, if they cut off the domain name system today uh, to all the Liberty content, people are going to wake up tomorrow and realize, wow, where did it go? You know, I can only access these few little websites over here on this website directory, you know, eight or I guess we're up to about 10 or 11 now. 
but that's not much content. And if you're using Odyssey instead of the LBRY app uh, and you don't have the app, you know, literally one day you're going to wake up and find out I can't access anything anymore. And then for content providers, because of the way they're set up for uh, publishing their websites, they're going to find they're no longer able to publish, you know. And so there will be no new content, no new news, you know, except for these few websites. And it's, it's a very important issue, and it really needs to be resolved, and that's what I'm thick in the middle of right now. Like right now, I'm watching Lou Rockwell, uh, you know, finish its uh, processing so we can get it on IPFS. And we've put uh, Unloose the Goose and the Survival Podcaster there. There's still some issues I need to address there, but they're mostly there. Uh, Corbett Report is on IPFS, as is uh, Declare Your Independence or uh, with uh, Ernest Hancock. And then all my websites, I've got four websites on there. And so, but it's a, it's a handful, you know, and hope to see that grow a lot soon. Excellent. Yeah, I think the important thing is to get that stuff done now, preemptively, right? To kind of anticipate some of the censorship vector points and to do what we can to navigate around them. So I appreciate you coming on. And those are some big websites too. I don't know if Freedom's Phoenix is on IPFS, but that's a huge old website. Same thing with Survival Podcast. He's been doing it for over a decade. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of content there for sure. But hey, I want to thank you so much for coming on and thanks for this work and, and thanks for helping to shine some light on this. And hopefully it'll answer the question for folks that are really concerned about the internet censorship. There's a, there is a way it just takes us doing it. So thanks for doing right. it. Thank you, John. Appreciate the opportunity to share all this. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Web three only podcast. You can find it there on library. Um, is your information at agorist.market also people can find your stuff? Yes. If you go to agorist.market, uh, you'll find a link to IPFS in the main menu and you can click on that. And I'm pretty sure I have a link from there to the IPFS website directory so that people can go to that and then see the other websites that we're aware of so far. And if anybody out there knows of a website that's on IPFS uh, being updated at a static address, uh, which is an IPNS address, uh, let me know. You know, I'd like to add you to the list. You know, I want that list to grow. Sweet. Okay. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks for joining us. You take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mike Swatek, the one, the only, the pirate, our matey. We are well underway with the D3 Tech Summit day two. And I want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, one of our big supporters, Inniscale. Check out Inniscale.net. That's I-N-N-O-C-A-L-E. Right there in front of you, Inniscale.net. They are actually the hosts of our website, thegreaterreset.org. Derek Bros trusts them to do the consciousresistance.com. They also host the Freedom Cells website, and they have been extremely responsive and attentive to our needs. They were able to handle the bandwidth of over 150,000 visits in a short period of time. So we trust them with our websites. It's uh, activist-owned, mission-driven 
freedom-oriented folks that run the company. And if you have a personal website hosting need or a business hosting need, I strongly recommend you check out inascale.com. Again, that's I in sorry, inascale.net, I-N-N-O-S-C-A-L-E dot net. Also, shout out to Float, float.app, alternative social media network. Uh, you can share whatever floats your boats, their tagline, because their logo is a little little sailboat. So go ahead and check them out. We're all on there as well. We're also live streaming to float.app. Pretty cool that they have that live streaming technology. All right. I'm super excited to bring our next guest on. He is one of the co-producers of the Greater Reset Activation. He also does the Conscious Resistance Network and a whole slew of other projects. The guy's super freaking busy and we are really excited to have him joining us this evening. Uh, the one, the only at D bros live free Derek bros. Um, he's going to talk to us today about the costs and benefits of unplugging from the grid. And I actually can trace my very first cryptocurrency transaction back. You could probably trace it back on the blockchain too, which isn't the best thing, but uh, it was a Bitcoin payment. Uh, he was writing for the Liberty Beat, the Liberty Beat radio news service. And he was, he's, he was an agorist. He's an agorist now. He's an agorist then. And I was like, how do I pay you? He was in Houston. I was in Austin. And he's like, well, I don't have a checking account, man. And I was like, all right, well, I, I respect, I respect that. That's dope. So I was going, I was taking my butt to Western Union at the grocery store and wiring him money. And then I was like, why the hell don't I just use Bitcoin? I keep talking about Bitcoin. We talk about the Bitcoin price on the show every day on the Liberty Beat. So that was my very first Bitcoin transaction and enabled him to stay in that agorist space and saved me a little bit of time and headache without the 7% fee, although the transaction fees are probably more than 7% now. So Derek Bros, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to hear from you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, brother. And thank you for all the work you and Ramiro have been doing and the, the whole team behind the scenes. Excellent. Excellent. All right, man. Take it away. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Again, I just want to start by saying thanks to John and to Ramiro and to Leah and the whole team and all the sponsors that have helped out to make uh, D3 a success and who are going to make next month's uh, uh, Greater Reset 2 uh, another success. So I'm looking forward to that. So for those who aren't familiar with my work, I'm going to give you a brief background as it relates to the topic of today. Like John said, I'm going to be speaking about the pitfalls and the benefits of living a off-the-grid lifestyle. And I want to clarify when I'm speaking about off-the-grid today, specifically, we're talking more in terms of uh, electronics and digital privacy, not specifically <clears throat> off the electronic, uh, the power grid, like living on the land just yet. That's in the, the near future for myself, but that's not what I'm going to be focusing on today. Today, as with the whole theme of this weekend, is focused on privacy and digital technology. So I'll be talking about in regards to that particular grid. Um, so yeah, as John said, I started to get paid as a journalist back in, I think he was saying 2012 or 2013. I can't remember because I started to get paid from John with the Liberty Beat and also Ben Swan. Some of you know him. Uh, I was writing for his website, Truth and Media, and I was getting paid in Bitcoin then as well. So back in 2012, 2013 is when I started to get into this world. And then as a journalist, attended the Texas Bitcoin Conference and other events, interviewing I, I interviewed Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum uh, back in the day and uh, uh, all the Charlie Lee of Litecoin and a lot of the people in the early days of the crypto space, the 2010s. And so I've been affiliated and connected with this space. Um, I did a couple of tours a few years back, sponsored by Bitcoin.com as well, going around the country, talking about these topics and giving away small amounts of Bitcoin and then Bitcoin cash to help grow the ecosystem. So I've been involved in this particular area for quite a while. 
And at the same time, the philosophy, which actually John introduced to me of agorism, which you might have heard with Sal earlier, uh, agorism and counter-economics showed me the idea. And actually, again, it was John's speech in 2011 in Houston at the Federal Reserve March where he was talking about the only way to kind of beat the Federal Reserve system or the Wall Street banking system, the 1%, that sort of thing, was to find a way to limit your use or stop when possible using their currency, the Federal Reserve note, and to use alternative currencies when possible. And that really struck a chord with me. And that was also around the time, of course, when crypto and Bitcoin were becoming more popular. So to me, the, the two just go together. Whether you're talking alternative paper currencies or alternative cryptocurrencies, local uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, I, I support it all. Barter networks, you know, time banking, anything that is not using the government's monetary system, whatever government you have, wherever you're at in the world. That was the whole goal that John, the seed that John helped plant in my mind. And that leads right into agorism and counter-economics and this idea that rather than just resigning ourselves to using this mainstream economic system that we, the white market, as it's been termed, um, which, it, which means that your income is going to be taxed, it's going to be monitored, there's going to be, um, you know, those taxes are taken out and going to programs, whether you like them or not. And again, this is in their hands, they being the state, there's a record of everything you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what most people tend to do. Uh, of course, this is changing with the internet as more and more people are becoming digital nomads or finding ways to work remotely, which is good and bad. Um, my point here is that there's just a lot more opportunity now for people to live outside of that mainstream economy and what has been termed the counter economy. And that's much of what I'm gonna speak about today is going to involve uh, the counter economy. Uh, I will be sharing a lot of information that came out of my book that I wrote last year. It's called How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State. I'll be showing you guys that in a few moments, but it is free to download on my website, theconsciousresistance.com slash how to, if you want to go pick up a PDF version of the information I'm going to be covering here. So I've been working as an activist and as a journalist to try to remove myself away from these systems as much as possible. Um, this means that I haven't used banks since 2008. Um, and specifically, of course, I, I will, I will uh, clear that up. Specifically, I haven't had a bank account. Now, because of how pervasive banks are in much of our world, anytime somebody sends me a PayPal transaction, technically, that's still the use of a bank. I'm not physically going to that bank. I don't have an account with them. But it's not it's it's not the fullest extent of where I want to want to be, but it's a step away from them, right? So, don't have bank accounts. I, um, uh, well, I don't have a working relationship with the IRS, and um, because of that, it's it you know as I'm going to say today, it's it can be quite difficult because in this mainstream white market, let's say you want to go get an apartment. Somebody, people have expectations. They want to see a record of you existing. And the more and more you pull yourself out of that matrix, out of that mainstream economy, the more difficult it can be to show people who still exist in that economy who you are, you know, what you're about. And we're going to talk about that and the alternatives that exist to that. So I want to speak next about the spectrum of privacy. And then we'll talk a little bit about where I fit in there and then some tips and tools that you guys can consider for yourself. So on a spectrum of privacy, we have somebody on, let's say, this end. And this is going to be your uncle who has no interest, concern, or desire to understand privacy and is constantly leaking information, leaving a digital paper trail everywhere they go. This person has a, a job in the mainstream economy. They have a bank account, so there's records of all those things. They have um, bills in their name. They um, you know, sign up for all kinds of uh, mailing lists and email lists. And so they're leaking data. We're going to talk about information flow. 
They're leaking information all over the place. There's just a clear and present record of them. And again, they don't seem to have an interest or desire in protecting their privacy. Maybe this person is sort of like, well, I have nothing to hide, so there's no, no, no concern. So that's one end of the spectrum. And we probably all know people like that or maybe are like that in some ways. And on the opposite extreme of the spectrum, you have what is known as the gray man theory. And I say this is extreme because it involves a lot of uh, lifestyle changes that um, that most people I don't think are willing to <laughs> willing to do. I'm going to show on the screen real quick just a little bit of this gray man theory. Um, so what is a gray man? Being a gray man means blending into any crowd or your surroundings during a dangerous situation. Um, anyone can be this. It's, it applies to any gender. But how do I become a gray man? Dress in muted colors. Don't wear tactical or military gear looking clothes. Walk or move around naturally. Appear average and non-threatening. If you have to move with the crowd, go with the flow. Keep weapons or survival gear or prepping gear, etc. Hidden. Be discreet when looking at an area. And then it goes into this whole list. And it's a really interesting concept that, that I, I find you know, somewhat appealing, but also, like I said, it's an extreme. I don't think the average person is going to be becoming, is going to change their whole style of dress and their behavior, at least not at the present moment, to gain a certain level of privacy and to blend in with the crowd and to not be remembered. You know, again, we're dealing with the age where most people are cl closer to the other end of the extreme, where they're just willingly putting all their information out on social media, tagging themselves, tagging their location, their habits, their likes, their interests, etc. And so that's the extremes, though. You have people who are doing things like gray man, who are changing their habits and their lifestyle and going to extremes uh, to maintain privacy and to avoid people prying, people's prying eyes and ears. And then you have people on the other side who really couldn't you know, care one way or the other. Now, where I fit in the spectrum, as I'm going to describe, I think is probably somewhere in the middle, but closer to the gray man. I don't think that for me at this point, if I wanted to maintain privacy, I wouldn't be doing things like this. I wouldn't, if I, you know, if I wanted extreme privacy, I wouldn't be uh, being a public activist and journalist. I would probably take more consideration into what I'm putting out there. But so at a certain level, I'm already out there and I have to accept that. Right. But that doesn't mean my private matters have to be out in the public accord you know my um transactions between individuals we've been talking a lot about crypto and private exchanges whether that's dollars in hand face to face or crypto from across the world the goal is privacy right so i am somebody that desires privacy in my transactions privacy in my personal relationships other than what i choose to put out there and uh obviously i have i have needs to meet i have i have a shelter i need to eat all these kinds of things that everybody else has but i have to i personally approach these situations with how can i get those needs met while also um not compromising the principles that i hold dear and not giving away my privacy so this brings us back to agorism and counter economics and um, Samuel Edward Konkin III, who is the originator, the discoverer of the idea of agorism and counter-economics, which again is just to opt out of the mainstream systems, both he focused on economics in the terms of the financial system, but it's also, in my view, the education system, the healthcare system, all these different things. You know, Our whole goal with The Greater Reset and D3 is to help people create and build something new, not to spend our time with politics fighting to save the old. So we're thinking about how do we exit from this failing system, this corrupt system, and build something better. And I think counter-economics is the answer to that. And I'm going to show now briefly a few parts from my book that uh, go into this. And again, the book is called How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State. And you can find it for free at theconsciousresistance.com slash howto. So I want to talk to you briefly about information flow. And uh, before we get there, though, 
Konkin talked about these two different theories that he called high profile and low profile counter-economics. And basically, this is just a, a way to say that some people are willing to take more risks. Some people are going to be more discreet with their counter-economic activity because ex ex specifically counter-economic activity, if you're going outside of that mainstream economy, that means you might be doing things that are considered illegal or things that the government would prefer you have a license or a permit for. And you're saying, I don't need permission to interact with a third party and exchange value or trade, whatever it may be. And so to some degree, people who choose this route, they, they do have a opportunity to kind of clash with, let's say the, the laws in some ways, if you choose to go that. And that would be what he calls the high profile uh, counter economics. And I'm just gonna briefly read this, um, this section here about counter-economics, so some of you can get a better understanding of it. Konkin talked about trading risk for profit. So if you understand that every decision you make is economic, whether or not it actually involves money or not, but all the decisions you make, the relationships you choose to have or do not have, are economic decisions. And so Konkin was basically saying, if you trade certain risk, like the risk of getting caught doing something you're not supposed to do, that is non-violent and not harming anybody, but it's just an exchange, then there is a, a profit in the form of benefit that comes from it. So for example, when you choose not to report all of your income on your taxes in order to save money for your family, you're trading a risk for benefit. In a similar way, if and when the state issues mandatory vaccination orders, mandatory retina scanning, mandatory microchipping, or any other mandatory program, you will have a choice. You can submit to these programs out of fear of punishment or damage to your reputation, or you can consciously choose to opt out of these systems. There will be risks and there will be benefits, and it's up to you to decide what is best for you and your family. And then that's when he gets into this idea of high profile counter economics, which again is kind of being a little bit more vocal with your maybe speaking very vocally about not doing certain activities, financial activities, and, and just trusting that you're going to be safe or people who are more low profile, a little bit more hidden. And what he gets to here is this section where he talks about the importance of controlling the flow of information about you from yourself towards the state, towards corporations, towards anybody, essentially, basically. And it's, it's information flow. So the idea is that you want to be the one, and I think Brittany was talking about this a little bit earlier, you want to be the one in control of the information that is flowing from you to Facebook or some corporation or from you to the government. But every time you download a new app, you are basically agreeing, okay, new information from me is going to flow from these people. So if you were to kind of visualize this and think about all the apps you have on your phone or computer and how many different people are scooping up data about you, and it could be your uh, IP address, just simple things like that. It could be your, you know, your, your uh, search history, whatever it may be. All of that is just information flow, just flowing out of you towards other people that you really might not want. And so the goal is to start becoming in control of uh, the information flow that you are voluntarily putting out there. And again, there are the extremes, as Konkin notes, of people who choose to go live in caves or you know live away from society and avoid all contact, and they never, you know, they get off mailing lists, they don't use banks, and these kinds of things, and they, they live like nomadic lifestyles. Again, I don't think most people are going to um, go that route, but I do think that you know some people might choose to. What I talk about in the book and what you've probably heard us talk about on this, this show, uh, on these uh, broadcasts, is the idea of exiting and building from systems that are you know interacting with your life in, in ways that you don't comply with. So the goal here then is to try to figure out what, what amount of information you are comfortable with allowing to flow out from you. And I have on screen right here for those who are looking, this is a strategy that I call be invisible, just really simply, right? And so if your goal is to remain low profile and be invisible, there are a few actions you can take immediately. Stop carrying cell phones everywhere you go. Stop using GPS. 
delete social media accounts and apps that track you, stop using credit and debit cards, cancel your bank account and use a credit union if you need to store funds, stop working jobs in the mainstream economy and stop paying taxes. Now, obviously these are extreme examples. And I mean, I think they're worthy examples of pursuing, they're heading towards, but there are some things I just said that probably won't fit with some people's current lifestyle. And I guess that gets us to the larger question of at how, how much effort are you willing to put in for your privacy, for your, um, you know, maintaining that, that level of privacy that you see is necessary to your life? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to change your lifestyle? Are you willing to quit your job? Are you willing to find a new job? Um, are you willing to stop using Microsoft? Are you willing, you know, it, it, it's all up to what you are willing to do. And I guess the goal here, I'm going to start talking about, as I wrap up in a few minutes, I'm going to start talking about how to interface with society and give you a couple examples of how this has been problematic for me. So when you're really thinking about what it is you're after, this is the formula that I, that I bring into the equation. I call it the freedom formula. It's the level of freedom desired. So what is it that you're after? How much privacy, how much freedom? Like, what does that look like? Really sit down and write it down and identify what your goal is on that end. And you add that to your willingness to change. Well, what are you willing to do to get that? Are you actually willing to make any lifestyle changes or do anything that might seem extreme at the moment to get this level of desired freedom? And when you, when you add that together, your level of desired freedom with your willingness to change, you get your actual experience of freedom. So if you're unwilling to make changes, then clearly your actual experience of freedom is going to be quite, um, quite different from what you aspire to be because you, you're not willing to make life changes. Um, now, the last thing I'm going to focus on here comes from this chapter of the book that I'll just point out for anybody who wants to dive deeper. It's called The Drawbacks and Solutions to Living the Counter-Economic Lifestyle. And um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, I, I um, don't have a bank account. I don't have a tax record as an adult. I don't have any bills in my name. And when I was living in Houston, it was uh, quite difficult to find an apartment after doing this for about 10 years. Because I basically, like I said, I didn't have any of these records. So when I would go to rent an apartment from somebody, what they expect is they want to see a, a bank record or a, you know, a tax record or something simply because it's trust. They trust the government. They trust the bank, which I think is a mistake. But in their mind, that indicates, oh, here's a real person. They have a bank account. I can see they have, you know, a pay. they have a pay history. But again, I don't get paid with paychecks. I get paid in crypto or PayPal or other means. And so it's difficult for me to show them my pay history, even though I'm a living, existing, breathing human being. I just don't have the documents from the state and the, and the banks and the systems that they're used to. So it made it very difficult for me to rent anywhere in Houston. I mean, I pretty much exhausted all of my options. Um, and it was very difficult to find any place that would rent to me without this, this record. But I want to give you one example of how the blockchain could, could fix that in some ways. Uh, for example, I post on on the Hive blockchain, which is just like a microblogging platform. Theoretically, I could create Derek's pay history and just create an account on the Hive blockchain. And literally just every week when somebody sends me or every month when I get paid and whether it's through PayPal or crypto or whatever, I could take a screenshot and a record of that and I could make a new post for that month and save that on my Derek's pay stub account on the Hive blockchain or any blockchain. And then there would be a running list of all of my pay history and of the thing, you know, that showing that I exist basically. And then when I want to rent out from somebody, if this person is crypto aware, or crypto savvy, I can point and say, see, look, here I am, here's the record. And they know that since it's a blockchain, I can't go back and 
alter it and you know that the images are saved it's there they can go back and see the record that's just one example that i thought about um to kind of solve this problem because as it stands it is pretty the more you get out of their system and then if you have to kind of interface which is what this idea is how do we interface with the mainstream because there might be sometimes that for example when i'm living out on the land and we're growing our own food and we're doing all these things that i have to come in the city for certain needs so I have to figure out how am I going to interface with the city if I'm coming to a city like Houston where I'm from and there's facial recognition cameras everywhere and there's all these things that I'm not comfortable with. You know, you, you have to think about that. Like how are you going to interface with that world once you are starting to pull yourself out of it? Because I don't think it's going to totally disappear. I think many of us will exit and build, but that mainstream world is still going to be there. And ultimately, again, it's up to us to decide how much information we let flow out from us and how we want to interface with that um, with that that world as we do that and and so yeah it has been difficult i hope this has come across clearly it has been difficult in some instances but it also has had many benefits for one like i'm proud to say that i've gone this path because it works for me but again i am a single person with no children and you know i mean i'm we're moving towards the land but i've, I've lived a, a certain lifestyle that i think makes this a little easier if you're doing a nine to five you know 60 hour job a week um, and you've got kids and these other things, and then you're trying to go in that way, you have to take it piece by piece. You know, Don't let what I'm saying or the idea of the gray man theory or some other extreme be overwhelming that you never get started. You can pull your money out of the banks that have been robbing us for hundreds of years, and you can put it in a local credit union where you have more say, or go down the crypto route if you're ready. I mean, there's a lot of small steps that we can take. Um, the last point I want to make, John, and I'm pretty much done here, is that uh, you know, since we're talking a lot about crypto, I, I do want to recommend the workshop that John and Ramiro and Matt McKibben are putting together. I just want to share a, a brief kind of note in that regard, specifically in regard to crypto use, right? Because um, I live in Mexico now and there are certain benefits about living in Mexico. So the house that we are renting right now, we have a paper contract with the landlord. There's no digital record of it. It's just something we signed together. So I don't have a problem with signing a contract with an individual, but there's no digital record of that stored anywhere, right? The internet service we have at this house is under a false name that we can go pay at the local gas station and there's no ID required. And that's, you know, so that allows me again, less information flow flowing out for me. The only, the only reason people know where I'm at is because I've advertised the city I'm in. Um, and then when it comes to crypto use, and it's, let's say if you want to purchase crypto, me, more and more I'm going towards things like Monero, and I'm trying to just focus on ways to buy Monero and, and you know, use crypto in a way that is going to be less, uh, that there's no KYC and that there's no record and all those kinds of things. I just want to recommend two sites, and I will be doing a longer video later on my channel on the Conscious Resistance that kind of goes deeper into this. But these are just a couple of sites to check out. As was mentioned, I think, by John earlier, though, Unfortunately, at the moment, when you do non-KYC, you, you definitely get taxed in other ways. So you might not get a really good rate for the Bitcoin that you're trying to buy. Or on this, this is HODL, HODL, H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L.com. And then this is localmonero.co. And you can you know, buy Monero on, uh, locally. What I was going to say, though, what I like about this and the fact that I'm in Mexico, one benefit of being in Mexico is if you're going to use this type of site, no KYC, to go on here and pick which amount of Monero you want to buy, in Mexico, you have the option to go to the OXOs, which are like the gas stations, corner stores all over the country, and you can you can make a, a purchase here, and then you can go pay it at the OXO, and then it gets sent to your wallet. So literally, there's no KYC involved in those OXOs. As far as I know, they don't have cameras in them. If they did, you could go gray man strategy and cover up your face or do whatever you wanted. So my point with saying this is there are ways to transact crypto privately, and I think that 
that's about as close to the anarchist cypherpunk vision that we can get when it comes to this is using those services. And then of course, peer to peer, that's where it should be at. And that brings us full circle to freedom cells, the importance of the counter economic community and why we're doing this event and why we have the freedom cell network. As John mentioned, we're past 20,000 people now around the world. We want each of you to join, whether it's because you want to get connected with people with crypto or some other reason, but the value of having a local meetup or a crypto, um, you know, a freedom cell that is into alternative currency is then you start to develop that local community. And let's say every month when you have the Houston freedom cell meetup, part of your meetup can be, Hey, if anybody has crypto to buy or sell or trade, let's, you know, have a little session and that's peer to peer. There's no third party involved. There's no exchange decentralized or otherwise there's no government. It's just individual to individual trading value. And I really think that that's where the future is if we're trying to, um, you know, really use crypto in a way that I think can be disruptive, can be decentralized and can be using distributed technology. And uh, yeah, so that's what I got, guys. I hope that that was informative to some of the pitfalls and, and benefits of, of crypt, uh, you know, living this lifestyle. I could go on about it, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to share this message, John. And thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Derek. That's good stuff. And I, I, I really appreciate the practical elements and uh, you just sharing what it's like, because I think there's a lot of people that want to be more in that space with more privacy, with more cryptocurrency, without the bank records. And they just don't really know what the steps would be like. Can you maybe share like just a couple first steps that are really simple, low hanging fruit people could take in order to get, like you said, there's that spectrum in order to start marching down towards more privacy? Yeah, I think that. So again, like talking about information flow, one of the most obvious ways we have information flowing out from us is if we have bank accounts or debit cards and credit cards and you know, that those take time to get rid of, especially if you're a person that's got lots of debt on those cards. I get that. But I would say the simplest thing you can do. I mean, there's just I can't think of any good reason. I'm sure others can just continue to use Chase Bank and Bank of America, et cetera, all these different banks that robbed us in 2008. And before that, when you have local credit unions in your area, I'm sure they exist. And generally, you have more power. You can actually vote on like what how they use those funds and they stay in the community as opposed to like a bank going to fund some pipeline or fund some other project you might not appreciate or agree with. So that I think is a real like simple step is find a way to get away from the banks, local credit union or, you know, crypto clearly and things like that. Um, I also think that as that we can clean up our email list, just a real basic thing I'll say is like, you know, if we're signed up for all kinds of different things, if you got your email addresses signed up for various accounts, and you have accounts on there, or just you downloaded an app one day and it's just sitting on your phone not being used, there's still data being you know, you, like, pulled from there. There's still information flow happening. So maybe it's time to you know, kind of do a, an assessment of your computer and your phone and look back and see what things you might have downloaded or what type of uh, systems you're plugged into that could also be leaking data. Right on. And I, I appreciate how you drove home the importance of community because if you go to rent a place from a stranger or to take a loan from someone and they're like, well, we need to see your 1040. We need to see your renting history. And you're like, I don't have that. Like you don't. Um, then it's hard to establish trust. And a lot of the stuff isn't like people aren't just trying to collect information to collect information. There is an, a role for that, that trail because it does establish trust with people that you don't know. But I think, like you said, the importance of community and what we've built with the Freedom Cell Network, we kind of just took a lot of the guesswork out of it. 
you have over 20,000 people that are like-minded that are down to do off-book transactions, that are down to do business and rent with one another. And if you can establish that community, and it's you also have to add value to the community and establish trust within the community. Don't just think that because you're part of the Freedom Cell Network, people are going to, you know, hop over and want to do business with you right away. But you you go, you get in the community, you add value, you participate. And then when you go to rent to someone, they don't need to see a paper trail or anything like that. They just know you and you have a reputation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's just, to me, when Konkin was talking about counter-economic community, he was envisioning something like what we built with the Freedom Zone Network. Because And that, again, when you think about crypto, Bitcoin, the idea of a peer-to-peer -peer currency. To me, that's like, obviously we can use digital technology, but when we can be face-to-face, -face, that's even better. you know. And like you said, you build up the trust and then you don't have to go use exchanges, which can be confusing. I've lost money on them when I was first starting out. You know, I sent money before I was supposed to and they never sent my money to me. And you, know, you can make simple mistakes like that. So it is important and helpful to have that local community. Can you talk about how I noticed someone in the comments, I think you responded to him in DLive too, when Sal was talking about 3D printing stuff and they're like, well, that seems like it's not self-reliant because what about my skills to actually build something rather than relying on a machine? I think a lot of people really think in black and white terms and they see us promoting cryptocurrency and blockchain and they think like, oh, well, that's all they're promoting and that's the be all end all. When in reality, we need to be fluid and diverse and inside, outside, crypto, silver, community, personal relationships. Can you kind of talk about that, how it doesn't have to be just one size fits all with all this stuff? Yeah, and you're right. We've seen this mentality kind of popping up more and more recently um, with people, I think, seeing it a little less nuanced than it is and looking black and white. But I think like for me personally, I will say just for information's sake, I'm also involved in permaculture. You know, I'm certified to teach permaculture because I think it's important for me to learn how to grow my own food and work with the land and live in balance and in harmony. And I also am interested in some of these projects, like there's one called Seeds that are popping up and are trying to com combine permaculture values with blockchain technology. And uh, so it doesn't have to be like, oh, you're either for nature or you're for technology or something like that. Clearly, everybody who uses social media embraces some form of technology. And so I think that we have to understand that the crypto space, the blockchain space, all these things are big. It's not simple and black and white, but also this is just one weekend, right? We have the greater reset next month. Where we're going to be talking about all kinds of other holistic solutions. We shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket. I do hold a little bit of silver. I do hold various kinds of crypto, but my favorite currency ever is seeds. And I stock up on seeds as well because I want to have that diversity. And I think that's a diversity when it comes to currencies as well as diversity of skills. Right on. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing and thanks for all the work you do. And thanks for uh, leading by example. I know consistent, the more consistent you are with these, with the philosophy of liberty and agorism, the harder it gets. So I really appreciate what, you, what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, brother. All right. Excellent. Excellent. All right. There you go, ladies and gentlemen, Derek Bros at D Bros Live Free. He's the co-producer of this D3 event and also co-producer of the Greater Reset Activation, May 24th through the 28th, five days, getting in-depth, not just tech like we focused on today, but we're going to talk about spirituality, natural health, homeschooling, unschooling, agriculture, regenerative agriculture, community building, all sorts of good stuff. Our last event was a smash success. We just did this one in response to the World Economic Forum, putting together this global technology governance summit. And it was like, oh, they're doing a meeting on how to use technology and blockchain and 
all sorts of 5G Internet of Things in order to create more, more surveillance, more centralization, more control. Well, we can't let that go unaddressed. So let's provide some alternatives to do just that. Now, I'm really excited to bring in our keynote speaker for today. This guy is a visionary. Uh, he's always ahead of the curve and he's got a really good ability to take some really big complex things and condense them down into a consumable fashion. And I think that there's a lot of people in this world that have a lack of imagination and they feel stagnant or overwhelmed with the way things are right now. And it's because they struggle to vision how things can be. And Max Borders is someone that's been doing just that. He's an author. He put together The Future Frontiers uh, and Voice and Exit before that with some other folks. And he's he's a father as well, a family man, really cool guy. And uh, I think that he's the perfect speaker to kind of bring everything together and and drive us home with a, with a positive vision for the future. So we're super excited to have you, Max. I'm so delighted to be here with you all. Yeah, man. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give you the floor. And uh, if we have time, we'll do some questions at the end, but really appreciate having you on. All right. And all you techno agorists out, out there will forgive me for all of the big tech shit that I'm going to use today, but That's I'm doing right. my best. I'm doing my best to follow in the footsteps of John Bush and Derek Bros. I so still have a email much. and Google Drive's pretty damn useful, <laughs> but, but I hear you. We're, it's baby steps. We're moving. It's, We're all, it's, it's baby nobody's steps. Nobody's perfect. All right. All right. Thanks, all right. Man. Yep. So thanks, everybody, for joining me today. I'm so, so excited about uh, about this. And if there's any problems, John, or anybody can can uh, come back in and let me know if you're having a problem with what you see. But <clears throat> um, in, you know, when when the organizers asked me to close it down and wrap it up in, in some kind of way that would bring inspiration to the event, um, you know, I couldn't help but, of course, sh shill my latest book. But the, the book is just on on message. And so I'm going to do a little bit of an overview of some of the messages in the book after collapse, which is available on Amazon. So I'm enriching Jeff Bezos and uh, but it's also available on Canonic XYZ, which is uh, uh, based on the blockchain, <laughs> the Bitcoin SU, uh, SV um, uh, Satoshi Vision block blockchain. And um, I, I just want to uh, invite you to come with me on a journey of ideas for a few minutes and we'll, we'll close down this event. Um, I've titled this Paths of Subver Subversion, and this could really have been the subtitle of the book After Collapse. And I'm referring to, to the United States Republic, the American Republic, and the society in which we're currently living. Um, with the collapse idea, I'll show you some of the breakdowns that are happening. But for the international audience out there, I want you to know that a lot of these messages are relevant to you as well. This is not typical, you know, American navel gazing. This is also probably relevant to you. So let's get started. Passive subversion. Um, America is breaking down and so are a lot of other countries. And let me talk about why. First of all, I argue that we use too many false metaphors when we start to talk about our socioeconomy. Um, 
pictured here, you'll see the Federal Reserve, but also Mission Control, you know, and the Phillips machine, which is the black and white picture. The idea here is that the socioeconomy can be described in sort of causal functional terms like a machine. And if, if our society is a machine, then we should be able to turn the knobs and the dials and adjust the rheostats in just such a way to give us some sort of pro-social result. And of course, I argue this is bullshit and that there are superior metaphors. But this is the first breakdown is the way we talk about our society. The way we talk about our society ought to be more like an ecosystem and not a machine. We are not machines and, the, and our society is not a machine. But watch as people talk about, about building an economy uh, from a central authority or uh, fixing the economy or running the economy. You'll hear a lot of this kind of language coming from people who are what I call high minds, uh, who practice high modernism, which is this idea that that the socioeconomy is something that can be administratively ordered from a central authority, which is, of course, usually Washington, D.C. or New York. Now, related to this idea is the idea uh, of hierarchies and that we should, in some sense, be organized in dominance hierarchies. Our whole po political apparatus in most of the world is based on this idea that that is essentially boils down to uh, politics as a pr pr protection racket. In other words, pay your taxes and we'll protect you. Um, but what what is this has created is an unsustainable hierarchy in in our society that is in competition with the bottom up processes of emergence that are trying to uh, uh, to exert themselves and to be born. So with the hierarchies and the, the networks that are currently in, in, um, in a more complex state of affairs in society, we're going to find that these hierarchies are going to break down. I argue in the book that they're going to break down. They're, they are breaking down because of the complexity yields information problems. Com complexity demands that we organize ourselves in networks. I think it's no accident that the agorists like uh, Derek Bros and like John Bush are organizing themselves into cell networks because that is precisely the kind of configuration that can handle and sustain social complexity. Hierarchies cannot. We've seen the shit show that is the pandemic ro rollout of vaccines and other kinds of measures. And this is just a further indication that hierarchies are breaking down as they should. What is also broken down is our collective belief in liberalism. And by liberalism, I don't mean something like, oh, you know, what uh, Rush Limbaugh would argue on on the radio uh, uh, before his death uh, as being like these damn liberals. What I mean about liberalism is the belief in human freedom and autonomy. Our belief in human freedom is on the wane. On one side, we have people with Molotov cocktails who were trying to dictate the terms of politics and on the other people with tiki torches and underneath it are the shredded remains, dried out, desiccated remains of our constitutional order. And let me just say the people, the, the, the founders who drafted the constitution were not perfect people and the constitution is not a perfect document, but it is the closest that we've had in human history to some measure of liberalism of a society based on human freedom. And we're turning our backs on that. 
Right now, we have tribes that are just trying to figure out who's going to dominate everyone else and inculcate and force down the throats their conception of the good. And we shouldn't tolerate that anymore. We have to re-embrace human freedom. But this is breaking down in America and around the world. Another point of breakdown is our in our sense of community and mutual aid. You know, one of the things I love about what, what these guys are doing is they are committed to mutual aid. They're committed to the idea that these central bureaucracies that are supposed to be stewards of the human good by somehow dispensing largesse on masses of people as if, you know, with no conception at all of who these individual people are, that this is somehow going to bring, bring about some pro-social result. You know, back in the turn of the, the century, uh, the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries, there one in three uh, people in Anglophone countries was a member of mutual aid societies, of fraternities, of sororities. Of, and I'm not talking about Greek, Greek week rushes. I'm talking about fraternal organizations where brothers and sisters of, in the human community helped each other, looked out for each other, knew to whom and to whom not to give 20 bucks, 100 bucks, 2000 bucks because they were uh you know, might drink it and drink themselves into oblivion with that, those resources. The welfare warfare state doesn't understand community. It can't be community. We hear stuff about so-and-so and so-and-so so country in, in, the in the Netherlands or in Scandinavian countries are compassionate societies. But how can a bureaucracy be compassionate when it doesn't even know the individual members of its community. If you belong to a member of a mutual aid society, your local lodger chapter, everybody knows everybody, and you can form an intersubjective agreement about who is deserving of assistance or not. And that's what make, makes community stronger. People can offer each other work. People can offer each other other forms of assistance. And this has utterly broken down in the United States. And when all it's left is you know, capitalist exchange. And I am no, I'm not, I'm a fan of capitalism. Don't get me wrong. But when you outsource your sense of responsibility to distant capitals and take it away from yourself, all that's left is, tra is transactional and selfies and bullshit. We need to return to a condition of mutual aid. Collective intelligence. How, it is it, how is it that you and I and the rest of us can have some, at least some facet of knowledge, a piece of this wider distributed truth out there? Uh, the mechanisms for collective intelligence in this day and age are utterly broken. And what do I mean by this? What, I'm, what I mean is collective intelligence is a species of knowledge in which we all share facets of a, a larger truth. And that may come in the for form of some aspect of a, a, a logistics chain that I contribute to in order to get the toaster that you like. But it also means, you know, something like, um, you know, a simple truth claim like do, you know, are are the um, do do lockdowns work to stop the spread of a pandemic? If you just have these just so stories there, if you operating mediated by screens with no contract, no real contact with your community and no real contact with reality, if everything is mediated by screens and your opinion is just some low cost proposition that you plop up there that's being rewarded by likes, 
there is no direct cost for you to be wrong. We've got to create with our new rules and new tools like distributed ledgers, like blockchain, some mechanism for having collective intelligence again. It used to be we had collective intelligence because we had tight communities and the collective intelligence didn't extend too far beyond that, except in universities and ivory towers. But what we're finding is the breakdown of the ivory tower, the breakdown of the media and breakdown of the apparatus of hierarchical control over knowledge and information. This is breaking down in, in the internet age too, but we can fix it and we can resume a higher order collective intelligence through new rules and new tools, as we'll discuss. Our civil order, civil order is breaking down. Bad discourse runs rampant. Again, if the costs of holding some view are, are uh, some false view is negligible or you're even rewarded for it, we're going to get bullshit narratives running through the information ecology. We're going to get a pollution of the information ecology. And that does not help you as an individual make good decisions. The civil discourse and civil order, if we're not going to tear ourselves apart as a nation here in the United States or in some other country, we're going to have to resume good rules of discourse and some idea of being grounded reality and tracking truth. This is being lost on the left with wokeism and this this idea of political utterance making making truth out of out of ex nihilo out of nothingness and on the right out of uh, you know crude nationalism and and biz a bizarre understanding troglodytic I believe understanding of reality both sides are full of shit and we need to return to a civil order that allows us to be part of a human community and yet diverse in our conceptions of the good. And finally, uh, in part one of my book, I talk about the breakdown of the federal government. I mean, look, man, there, there are th these powerful authorities believe that they're in cahoots with one another. You know, there is this collusion between the federal government on the one hand and on the other, the Federal Reserve Bank and the the constellation of bankster banksters that surround the Federal Reserve and I don't mean to be, you know, I'm sure there are good people working in all, all levels of the, but they're out for their own interest and their own interests are not yours. When they collude, they're out to preserve their own conceptions of the good and not yours. They do not care that they are devaluing your currency. And in fact, they see cryptocurrencies and other, other kinds of, you know, uh, local currencies as competition, and they're going to try to shut you down. The agorists, the techno agorists and, and, and the like out there are going to have to figure out how to um, stay ahead of the game from an evolutionary standpoint. We are existing in an evolutionary fitness landscape and the federal government, the Federal Reserve does not give a shit about your well-being. That should be the first assumption. If you get to a debt level that is depicted on the screen right now, we don't know what is on the other side of this precipice. And if we have a financial collapse or a, some sort of sovereign sovereign debt crisis, we're all going to feel it. And the moneyed interests are going to be long gone onto their private islands and so on. And the, the people in power are going to just turn, turn to coercion when they can't use carrots anymore to try to get you to fall in line with their matrix of beliefs. So we've got to stay ahead of that. Okay. So what are the paths of subversion? If we admit that 
all in all these vectors of of society were breaking down. What do we got to do to subvert these these old hierarchical paradigms that are no longer serving us, or at least not serving us well? So the overview is the following list, and I'll go through these individually quickly. First, I believe, first and foremost, we need a moral realignment. And I'm not trying to take you to church here. Okay, I'm not trying to tell you that you're a bad person. I'm trying to tell you that we're living in an incentive system that keeps you, that is telling you and giving you messages that you are a victim or you are an oppressor or that uh, somehow or other someone is responsible besides you and people in your community for your fate. And the moral realignment needs to start with you. You are at the center of your concentric circles. Outward from that are family community, then nation. But we got to start with number one, and this moral alignment begins with conscious and continuous practice. So the spheres of practice I present uh, as the five main ones that we've got to practice. And I mean, when I mean practice, I'm not, I don't mean a, a bare abstract rule that you just say, okay, I'm into this, or I believe in this, or this is how this should be the nature of law or the basis of law. I'm saying this is something we have to practice every day. These five spheres of practice have to be engaged in in a co constant, conscious way every single day. Nonviolence, integrity, compassion, pluralism, and stewardship. Nonviolence, and these are, these are consistent with and very similar to the yamas and the yogic tradition and the Eastern traditions. And the, the uh, Vedic traditions are, I'm, I'm appealing to them for a reason. They're 4,000 years old traditions because they work, okay? And when we deny ancient wisdom that works, we are shooting ourselves in the foot because we think that we're better than the ancients. To hell with that. They found the, they found the code that starts with us. And if everybody adopts this code, humanity will be a better place. Nonviolence, don't hurt people. Don't think about don't don't cultivate bad thoughts about people or vi violent thoughts about people and certainly don't practice violence in word and deed this is this should be self evident integrity be a person of your word be a person who not only honors their agreements shows up on time but integrity integrity that you bring to the situation increases the integrity social integrity which is how we cohere as a human species compassion don't forget about those around you. Being autonomous or being sovereign doesn't mean about forget forgetting about those whom you love in your community and being an acute observer of those of those folks. It means exercising, constantly looking out for your neighbors and those you love and extending as far as you can beyond that practice to the wider world if you can. If you're a rich person, be compassionate towards those you don't know and help them out, not in a way that will make them dependent, but in a way that will make them better. Pluralism. This is just an extension of toleration means, hey, there are going to be people in my community that are different from me, but that's OK. As long as they're not hurting me and operate with integrity and in compassion, they are part of my tribe. And that tribe can can extend to all of humanity if possible. Pluralism just says, hey, we're all, all in our niches and what we think is the idea of the good. We might live in a commune, a, a kibbutz, communal arrangement where we share goods, or we might live in some other kind of situation. But whatever your conception of the good, let that be. And let's carve out niches of, of, of 
different rule sets and different experimentations in living and live and let live. And finally, stewardship. This is an extension. This is just saying, hey, look, if you own property or you have control over a company or an organization in some way, leave it better than you found it. Practice non-attachment. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be rich. Absolutely acquire wealth, but think of yourself as a steward of that wealth in in creating and improving the lives of oneself and others in balance. Stewardship is, is, is more important than just hoarding or acquisitive nature. And this is someone who has, who is, I'd love to be rich. I'd love to be Jeff Bezos, but I, but also in stewardship, I understand my responsibility as a steward of capital or of land or whatever I possess. Now, these are sovereign. These are practices of uh, uh, what I just talked about are practices of, of, of moral practices, daily practices, but they're also sovereign practices. This is the autonomy stuff that you guys have been treated to, I'm sure, quite a bit this weekend. So sovereign practice starts with the self. I believe the first thing you got to do, and as I said, kicking off, I, I, I get sucked in and I get, I get trapped into the network effects of some of these things. But to the extent possible, I want to say, don't do uh, as I do, do as I say in this context. And that just means decrease bureaucratic dependency. All of us in this community need to figure out ways. And sometimes it's hard. You know, Derek Bro says it's sometimes hard to, um, to decrease your dependence on these bureaucracies or these big tech companies. But to the extent possible that you can live in peer-to-peer networks or even better develop the protocols for them, that is better for the techno-agorist revolution. And by this, I mean to say, expand your agency, okay? What can you do as an autonomous practice that makes you more powerful, more more engaged with your uh, community, not only more engaged, but more potent in the things that you can do? Your leadership in your community should be based on expanding your agency. It doesn't mean that you're going to coerce someone or tell them what to do or try to get elected to an office so that you can boss people around and realize your conception of the good through through um, some sort of coercion. It's about expanding your effectiveness because people listen to you because what you have to say is important and helpful in improving their lives. So that's what I mean by expanding your agency and your sovereignty. Extending your circles of responsibility happens through this exact same path. You are responsible for you. You're responsible for your family and the extent to which you can extend those eccentric uh, concentric circles outward is um, the extent to which your life can have greater meaning because people find that you're important and loving and they come to count on you. And that is a good thing. You can you can derive tremendous meaning in that. All of this is conscious, continuous practice. It means every day. It means, Max, and I got to remind myself this all the time. It's one thing to write books about it. One thing's to give talks about it, but you've got to live it. And in living, I've got to find a way, for example, maybe not to use these, these Google slide decks because I'm perhaps contributing to an ecosystem of disvalue by supporting Google sometimes. Um, and in this conscious, continuous practice, of sovereignty, I am ascending to mastery. Just like a warrior monk, I'm ascending to a level of conscious, continuous practice. I get better and better at it. You might say, I get a red belt. I get a brown belt. I get a black belt. 
at my sovereign practices because it never stops. It's a constant process of peer-to-peer improvement. You're improving yourself and your others, and you're in your mutual sovereignty, improving each other because that's what communities do. And finally, uh, there is there is this basis in all of the Vedic traditions called ahimsa, which is nonviolence. And from this sprouts satyagraha, and that is a fancy uh, term that from those Vedic traditions, I believe it's Sanskrit, that is truth, the force of truth or truth force. It means the more you tell the truth, the more you're connected with the real, the more you are able to to realize the good and the moral and project that in your community and outward, the more force there is in it. It is not the force of arms. It is not the force of bloodshed. It is the force of the true, the beautiful, and the good. And Satyagraha was the practice of Gandhi. It was the practice of Martin Luther King. And it can be our practice as we respond in, in sovereignty to these great hierarchies that are trying to bilk us and keep us down. So self-organization. Um, I don't know how much time I have. I don't want to go over, but these are the, the we can self-organize. We often think, and, and especially in, um, in our organizations, but after we take care of ourselves, the next thing we want to do is, is self-organize. And in self-organization, we engage in subversive entrepreneurship. And what do I mean by that? We strip down hierarchies and show that we can exit those hierarchies and enter new peer-to-peer relationships. Uh, holacracy is a fantastic practice for non-hierarchical organizations. Uh, Morningstar self-management is another form. These institutionalized spheres of practice means we can form organizations all day long, but they may not look like the CEO, the middle management, and the rank and file. And in fact, in doing self-organizing organizations like like uh, co-ops that use these really cool new social uh, operating systems or protocols internally to help bring out the best in people. We empower everyone in the organization. And eventually all of these hierarchies are going to have to scale to these forms. We're going to be ahead of the game because we're going to already know how to, we're going to be fluent in the, in the protocols, the language of self-organization. Of course, crypto tokenization. I don't have to tell this crowd about that, but, you, you've all had these lessons this weekend's uh, this weekend I know um, one thing I would say is yes it's true that yes it's true that we that we can see crypto as as a monetary system as a system of stored value uh, as a mechanism you know a mechanism for smart contracts but it is also the other side of that coin of profit is purpose and we should never forget that Satoshi Nakamoto, who, in, who was the person or people who invented the, the Bitcoin protocol was just as much a missionary as, as, he, as he or she was about money. And we should never forget that. And I'm not saying go, in, go out and try to ruin a stock value by bidding it up in some crazy fashion out of alignment with value. What I am saying is the cryptocurrency ecosystem can be about future value, but it can also, the future value of that system in instrumental terms, but can it also be about subver- subverting the dominant monetary pr- uh, paradigm? You all know about minding your keys, your private keys, keeping your shit together. I, again, this is conscious, con- continuous practice for me every day, and I have to keep up with it. I'm the worst at it. 
uh, in, in fact, but that's that's okay because this is what and this is the only way that the revolution is going to proceed from this point. So I got it. I got to do better. And of course, with crypto tokenization, we can start uh, distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs. We got to keep at it. This is the this is 1.0. We've seen some DAOs that have failed. That's okay. Um, Dash has a great DAO. It needs improvement. It's based on democracy, but the distributed autonomous organization is still the wave of the future. We've just got to perfect it. We got to keep at it. We got to keep practicing and develop developing protocols that will reduce transaction costs for people to collaborate at scale. Polycentrism. This is a fancy word, guys. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you, but all it means is breaking up power from central locations to many different loco locations. So even if you have hierarchies locally, we can see those hierarchies. We can see who's running them and we can hold people accountable. That is impossible with Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is a situation where you've got all of this power and we, we kid ourselves every two or four years, crying our teardrop in the ocean, expecting the tide to turn with these, these sham elections. Give me a break, okay? We know that this is just a giant spectacle to, to keep us in, in the illusion that we're actually making change, but we're not really, not to any appreciable degree. Um, a polycentric order is going to be about radical federalism. That means at the very least in the United States, there should be 50 countries, 50 distinct entities. If we respected the Constitution that was given to us, particularly the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, we would know that 95% of what the federal government does is illegal and unconstitutional. All we have to do is enforce the Constitution as it is written. So that's step one. Step two, introduce subsidiarity. Everything, everything should be handled, tasks should be handled at the most local feasible level. Half the things that the federal government does, they can't do well because it's not local. And it's no wonder. We need to have a subsidi subsidiarity rule in place, if not the federalism that we're constitutionally supposed to be guaranteed, we need to have it. We should have a secession amendment that any state or jurisdiction should be able to secede from any other jurisdiction and self-determine. And this ensures greater local sovereignty. Special economic zones protect from wider corrupt or orders, whether it's in seasteading or the Prospera project in Honduras. If if the shit hits the fan in the United States, there is a great little enclave called Roatan in Honduras that has incredible institutions that they've just established that protects it from the wider Honduran order. It's not to say it won't fail or be overrun by, by the corrupt uh, Honduran government. It's just to say that right now it looks really, really promising. And it looks a hell of a lot better than Honduras or the United States in terms of their institutions. So we can practice as sovereign individuals expatriation. We got to leave. It's not easy for everybody to do that, especially if you have kids, grandparents, extended family. But to the extent possible, if your institutions suck, we need to operate with a view to voting with our feet, not voting with our ballots. Because again, that is a spectacle. Cloud governance, same kind of thing. E-citizenship, ULEX, uh, e-citizenship, it means you can become a member of Estonia that has better institutions. You have to pay their taxes. You have to live under their governance rules. But we have to always think about trade-offs. In, in a world of trade-offs, if we don't have our ideal 
institutions, somebody's going to present a set of institutions that we might be able to enter into and exit our shitty institutions. One e-citizenship from Estonia is one option. It's not perfect, but it's something better in, in terms of doing global global commerce. Ulex is the uh, is on-chain um, common law. It is a beautiful system. And I encourage you to look into Ulex as a mechanism for governance that is superior to statute law, in my view, that we have in our local municipalities. Uh, electronic arbitration is a way of saying, uh, if you're going to establish agreements with people and you, you need a third party to settle disputes, do it. Don't do it with the governance rules we have here because they're so corrupt. Uh, use electronic arbitration and look carefully at the services they provide and the, and the way they settle disputes. And finally, distributed income support cooperatives or DISCs are, are my, my version of, of um, mutual aid on, on, on blockchains or distributed ledgers. And I love for you to look at uh, an article I wrote. It's, it's, it's also in the book, but an article I wrote, you can find it online right now called How We Become the Social Safety Net, which describes the distributed income support cooperative. So how do we become the social safety net? How do we look out for each other? We use local knowledge. No more centralized welfare. We don't need to be dependent on that because that is a devil's bargain, folks. Uh, we need to self-organize for charity, healthcare, and income support. We need to have secular, religious, and communitarian means of helping each other out locally so we can keep an eye on each other, both in the positive sense and in the negative sense. And of course, I want to return to truth force, satyagraha. We want first to track the truth. We want to have understanding, be patient in how we view the world, the lenses through which we mediate our knowledge of the world. We have to be very skeptical and suspicious of the authorities who claim expertise. And we've got to do our best to use our critical thinking skills and not let these rampant narratives drive our critical thinking. We have to practice ahimsa, which is nonviolence and thought, word, and deed. But that is not pacifism. That means that does not mean we shouldn't fight or defend ourselves when necessary. OK, it just means that we should never initiate violence against anyone who's innocent. And the practice of Satyagraha is a very active truth force, is a very active uh, mode of being that is about being a warrior monk. Yes, you don't initiate violence, but you you can bring violence to the old institutions that are holding us back as human species. Um, that means righteous active subversion, which you've been hearing all about this weekend, I'm sure. So if you think about the, the Bhagavad Gita, you think about Krishna driving your chariot, and this is a metaphor for, for this, this placidity and this centeredness we have in approaching uh, making social change. Let Krishna drive your chariot. L let yourself be centered, whether that's in meditative practice or prayer or whatever your faith tradition even if it's secular, get that centeredness so that you can remember to practice all of those moral practices that are conscious and daily practices, your sovereign daily practices to go out in the world and be a warrior monk for human freedom. I want to thank you guys very much for listening and letting me play today. I appreciate it. I want to thank Derek and John for doing a kick-ass event and letting me come along. I appreciate it. And Lord help me, get on Amazon and, and, 
and enrich Jeff Bezos just a little more uh, and buy my book after collapse where you can read about all this stuff in detail. Thank you very much. All right. Good stuff, man. I, I, I was monitoring the comments. People really thought I was well thought out. And I think there's a lot of uh, practical kind of transition stuff. Like what are the institutions that we need to focus on or help to develop and cultivate that can bring us to this better world? Because there's so much there. It, obviously, the enemies of liberty are like really in the drive, not in the driver's seat, but they seem to be ahead of the curve, right? With the resources and the advancement. And then there's like this whole conspiracy for many, many years to create more totalitarianism and control. And now the technology is there, which can accelerate this whole panopticon thing. But that doesn't yeah. mean that we can't continue to participate and push back. Um, what do you think about the overlap? That's been a theme and a concern. You know, a lot of our audience subscribes to the conspiratorial view of history and is skeptical of cryptocurrency and blockchain. Okay. So can you comment kind of on how blockchain is being utilized, you know, for private transactions and people controlling their money and keeping their money from the man, but it's also being used for digital identity certificates and uh, token-based geospatial access or lack of access and, and all that stuff. What are your thoughts on that tension? Yeah, look, let's, let's take an example. Um, let's take Bitcoin, for example, and Bitcoin Core for for as a as a prime example and i i hold btc i also hold other cryptocurrencies bitcoin some might say okay this has been it's been corrupted it's been taken over by the powers that be and they hold the marionette strings and they're 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 playing with you right now because you think that bitcoin is this wonderful uh technological system that allows you to escape the man but it's been co-opted and is going to i've heard these stories look I don't know whether or not that is true. I don't know whether the evolution of Bitcoin will be such that it allows for, for the financial powers and government powers to extend their panopticon or not. But here's the great thing about cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies, each cryptocurrency is rather like an organism in a wider ecosystem. And thankfully, there is at least some level of liquidity between systems right now. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that's going to be, you know, that there aren't going to be some illiquid state of affairs, you know. But imagine your cryptocurrency, any given cryptocurrency is another competitor that offers different kinds of properties. So if you think that Bitcoin is has been co-opted by the man and some other cryptocurrency hasn't, then migrate to that cryptocurrency, right? Don't just think about this in terms of how am I going to get richer uh, through the def deflationary effects of, 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 uh, of, say, Bitcoin. Think about it in terms of, of your, what is, is the likeliest uh, token or cryptocurrency that's going to make you the most resilient in the face of power. If you don't think that there are cryptocurrency tokens that can do that, there are local uh, local in-kind currencies that allow you to trade uh, on a blockchain. Um, you know, there is just trading in gold and silver. There's just, there's all kinds of other ways to do that. Trading goods in kind, trading services in kind. This is not always easy on a global scale, 
and I believe that some of the alternative uh, cryptocurrencies, if not Bitcoin or some other fork of Bitcoin, it could be some other. It could be Dash. It could be Monero. It could be Zcash. It could be any number of these other cryptocurrencies. And if you like some of those, like both the privacy, the security, and the anonymity of these tokens, I would suggest that you know you investigate those. It's not to say that that the powers that be couldn't make them all illegal tomorrow. And if they somehow catch you with a private wallet with these things in them and make make your world a living hell, they could do that. There's no doubt about it. If, if, if they absolutely wanted to, it's like John said, they wanted to do that, they could uh, make an example of you. But this, these ecosystems are constantly evolving. It's like an uh, evolutionary arms race, okay? And it is our responsibility to stay on top of this evolutionary arms race from day to day. And as much as I hate to say it, because we just want it to be convenient, we want it to be easy, but freedom has to be fought for. It can't just be willed into existence by, by electing the right person or hoping and praying that's, you know, that the angels are going to be installed in office. They're not. We have to constantly on, stay on top of this stuff. And that comes at a cost. Freedom ain't free, as they say. Yeah, right on. Yeah, man. Um, if you, I like how it, it is constantly evolving and even it's evolving towards more decentralization. Paradoxically, it's also evolving towards more centralization and regulation, re, uh, regulation, but there's also decentralized exchanges and decentralized finance that are really spreading. And that's when you can do business and commerce and swap coins here and there without having to have a company or KYC. So it's always important yeah. to stay on top. And it's I really mean, hard to do that in the US because yeah. the man does not want the competition. Uh, yeah. But there are ways to get around that, uh, you know, VPNs and other kind of cryptographically protected means of engaging in foreign, uh, you know, swaps, Uniswap and other kinds of uh, exchanges that allow you to uh, get around KYC and other other Panopticon mechanisms. Heck yeah. Yeah. The good old VPN. There's always a way around it, even in these color revolutions in the Middle East that took place. Uh, somewhat recently, they would like shut down access to Twitter because people were organizing through that. And then people set up mesh networks and found little hacks here and there. So like the human spirit is pretty incredible. It's like a weed growing out of the crack in a sidewalk. You know, it's the life is going to find a way to continue to flourish. And that's a beautiful thing. All right. Uh, before we let you go, let me let me set one more thing up for you. Um the, the year 2030 is a big year for these globalist technocrats, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the World Economic Forum says, you know, by the year 2030, we own nothing, have no privacy, and we've never been happier, all this ridiculous stuff. And of course, we had Agenda 21 from 1992. They updated that to the 2030 agenda and all these sustainable development goals. If a lot of these plans were to come to fruition, you know, it, it would be... Uh, not a good society and I like property and I like self-ownership and I like choice and I like being in control of my own destiny. And, and that's not where they want things to go. But to assume that that's how things will be uh, takes away our power and grants an omni an omnipotence to the cabal, to the powers that wish they were. So because you're, you know, you call yourself a futurist and you're, you're always forward thinking, if, if you could, before we let you go, paint a picture of what your vision for 2030 is. Oh, wow. That is a great question. I think my vision for 2030 would be 
multiple thousands, let a thousand flowers bloom, multiple jurisdictions, whether those jurisdictions are in the cloud or on land, we have to experiment with different systems in living. You know, I don't hope that the United States government and society collapses to, to thrust us into a dark era. What I hope is that those that, that, that the former human systems that are no longer serving us collapse and out of that and through the cracks in the, the old order, the beautiful and organic pluralism of systems emerge that we can all self-organize and opt into. Okay. What do I, what I mean by that is that radical pluralism just means like, I don't presume to know how you want to live. You may want more privacy or less privacy. You may want more property or less property. And that's not to say that I think that, that someone should be judged by any of those conceptions of the good. It is simply to say that people have different ways of living that make them happiness and that give bring them happiness and make them more more fulfilled. Some people want to live in a in a you know as I said a kibbutz or a commune. Other people want to live in some other alternative lifestyle with greater moral strictures, with fewer moral strictures, with polyamory, with monogamy. There's all kinds of ways of life out there that really don't. It doesn't make it as long as you have a your circumscribed conception of the good within a system such that you are paying attention to those core moral beliefs of not hurting other people, you know, not, you know, not non-harm, ahimsa, um, then we can fashion different systems and different enclaves. So my vision for 2030 would really be just letting a thousand systems bloom so we can find the system that works best for us as individuals and groups. And that's it. It's pretty damn simple. I love it. Your polycentrism. Very nice. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining and closing us out. I really appreciated what you had to say and people are, are definitely digging on it as well. And I think there is hope for the future. It just takes everyone contributing their part to, to change things for the better. And technology is definitely helping us along the way. Thank you so much, Max. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All righty. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. This is the end of day two of the Decentralized Distributed and Disruptive Technology Summit, aka the D3 Tech Summit. We've heard a lot in these two days. It's been like 10 hours worth of content. Wow, this is my weekend. I got to get back to the office tomorrow too. I'll probably take it easy maybe lay low and hang out with my lady for a little bit. But I want to thank everyone that uh, participated, all of the presenters, all of the speakers, all of the folks in the audience that are there chatting away on YouTube, Facebook, Telegram, DLive, Float. I also want to thank Leah and Tyler and the rest of the crew that helped us backstage in the green room. There's a lot that goes on to putting these productions on and a lot that goes unseen. So I want to make sure everyone on the back end uh, gets their thanks and recognition as well, because everybody's been working really hard for quite some time. I want to shout out Ramiro as well for all the work that he's done on the tech side. And uh, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsors here before I play us out, hopefully with some 
some words of inspiration. Uh, we are very grateful for Bitcoin.com. Check their website out. You can do exchanges. You can download a wallet. You can access the online casino through a VPN if you're in the US. And awesome, great news. They've even covered some articles about the, the great reset as well. Get Autonomy. Go to getautonomy.info. This is a 13-week course all about reaching your highest potential and living a life of excellence. It's led by Richard Grove, who's a really swell guy and just a whole wealth of knowledge and really professional, this guy. I'm participating in this season. It's the fifth season that they've done. There's a huge community of people that are participating as well. And it's really just people helping one another, everyone that's pursuing excellence, coming together and helping one another in that pursuit. Uh, float, float.app. This is an alternative social network created by some crypto folks and some voluntarists. There's a lot of really cool people on there and they don't censor anything. And we were live streaming there right now. So shout out to the folks that are watching on Float. Again, you can download that on your smartphone or online at float.app. And finally, none of this we could have done without Inoscale, Inoscale.net. They are doing our cloud hosting and they are super gracious liberty lovers and they've really done a lot to, to help make this possible. So definitely check that out. And don't forget above.agency, above-market, uh, above or above-agency is the website for Ramiro. If you appreciated his talk, he was really uh, laying out some good information. And again, he's going to be participating with us in a it's above-agency.com, above-agency.com. If you liked what he had to say, we are doing a workshop. It's taking place the 15th and the 16th. You can click one of the links in the YouTube notes or on the greaterreset.org slash live. If you can't find those links, you can go to cryptoandprivacy.com. Myself, Matt McKibben, and Ramiro are going to be spending eight hours with you over two days to help you get onboarded into the cryptocurrency ecosystem, teach you how to acquire cryptocurrency privately, to transact privately, teach you about decentralized finance, where you can multiply your cryptocurrency and also teach you how to surf the internet and send messages privately and encrypted, which is really important these days. So I just want to wrap up with some, some thoughts here. Uh, if anybody has any comments as well, we wanted to have some community engagement. So if anybody wants to share their feedback or uh, their experience, if there's anything that they learned, if there's any specific uh, speakers or presenters or ideas that they came away with. We would love to hear. I hear some folks here talking about freedom cells, definitely participate in the freedom cell network. Guys, we've, we've built a community of over 20,000 people all across the globe. And these are all people that are on the same page. They recognize that there's a problem. They're not content with the way things are going in this world and they are working to do something about it. It's not just focusing on the problems. It's not just researching. It's not just sharing articles, which everyone just seems to love to share and forward articles all the time. Whatever. I don't know. It kind of perturbs me, uh, but whatever. Instead, it's people that are focused on building. And the strategy is to exit and build, or better yet, to build and make it easier to exit completely wholeheartedly like Derek Bros has. And like he talked to us, we want to build those institutions. We want to build that infrastructure. We want to use decentralized technologies. We want to use um decision-making mechanisms. We want to come together and do cool stuff. A lot of people are interested in intentional communities and eco-villages. 
So I invite you to join the Freedom Cell Network. You can go to freedomcells.org, freedomcells.org. That's C-E-L-L-S. It is an example of decentralized technology, human technology, people that are participating. We are super excited. I'm seeing a lot of feedback. What an amazing weekend. Can't thank you enough for your hard work, John and team. Thank you so much for participating. We really appreciate that. There's some folks talking about Tor Browser and... ISP. Mike Swatek had a great um, presentation as well. I want to thank the, all the presenters again. So let me just leave you with this before we play you out here. This event is a response to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, which essentially is this collaboratory effort where oligarchs, industry heads, world leaders, technocrats are working together in order to reshape society as we know it. Just about every single one of society's institutions from business and economies to governance models to the relationship between human beings. They also want to track and trace and catalog and control every bit of biodiversity on earth, not just the humans. Big element is human capital markets. They want to treat people as commodities rather than intrinsically valuable human beings, life forms, all life forms. They want to leverage certain technologies in order to more effectively track and trace people, right? It's very frightening stuff. And the Greater Reset is a pushback on the Great Reset. And this D3 Tech Summit is a pushback on the Global Technology Governance Summit that the Great Reset put together, the World Economic Forum put together earlier this month. And when you study what it is that these individuals, corporations, governments, and people are pushing for, it's not good. They try to make it appear as though they want to help the environment or help people that are in poverty. But in reality, that's a con, right? A good con man. It's a confidence man. They get you to gain confidence in them. And then they do the old bait and switch. And so in reality, what this agenda were it, were it to come to full fruition look like is just as the World Economic Forum says in some of their propaganda. It's the year 2030. You own nothing, you have no privacy, and you couldn't be happier. That really sums it up nicely. No private property, you like rent everything and it's delivered to you by a drone and then it goes to the next person. They talk about not even having your own private home space to exist in. You just go take some time and do some things in this area and then you're shuffled off to wherever. And the surveillance element is something that we really hammered home on today. Imagine, you know, a panopticon, it's the, the visualization of a panopticon is like this round, round prison and everyone can see everyone else, right? And if you've ever read 1984, I know that uh, that was reading in high school. Um, they certainly didn't tap into the subversive nature of it or explain that this is kind of how things are going. Well, well, George Orwell was really ahead of his time Likely he was because he rolled around with some of the elite, right? And Aldous Huxley was related to Julian Huxley, a eugenicist. And we're really close to that nightmare dystopian vision. And rather than having telescreens on the wall 
everyone's kind of bringing it upon themselves with these smartphones and the way that we interact with the digital space and the digital sphere. So I want to remind people that we, every single person tuned into this stream, every single person watching after the fact, every speaker, every presenter, every person that played a role in putting it together, and every person that's been following along, we are all infinitely powerful human beings who have not yet begun to tap into our potential. I think that we've been lied to and we've been manipulated and socially engineered from birth in order to exist in a state of impotence. And it's only when we realize the power that we have and step into that power that we can make real change possible. So I want to encourage you when you're exploring new technologies, when you're learning about this diabolical agenda that's at, at play here, rather than to look at it and go inward and get small and get frightened and overwhelmed, I want you to use the possibility of that future as motivation to do everything that you can in your personal life, in your family life, in your business life, and in your community to change the tide away from centralization of power, away from greater surveillance, and away from control to a place of decentralization, to a place where people have privacy, they own their data, and to a place of freedom where we can live our lives according to our own ends. And I tell you what, there's some technology available right now, decentralized technology, Web3 technology, encryption technology, and human technology, the human technology that we have and the ability that we can communicate with one another and we can come up with great ideas and we can collaborate and we can build cool things. Let's step out of the victim mentality already and step into a place of empowerment because that's what it's gonna take for us to build a better future. So when 2030 rolls around, we can look back and say, man, remember those clowns at that great reset stuff? Jeez, they sure put up a pretty good effort, but it just wasn't, it just couldn't stand up to the mighty human spirit that we all just stepped into. We got invigorated, we got motivated, we stepped into our power, we understood that we're in control of our destiny, that we can shape the course of history, and we did just that. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I, again, I want to invite you out to the Greater Reset Activation 2 taking place May 24th and the 28th. We're going to be sharing a lot of the similar ideas that we shared today, but we're going to take it a step further. It's five days with five different areas. You're going to leave feeling inspired, motivated to take action and connecting with your fellow human beings. We're doing an in-person in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. We're doing an in-person here in Austin, Texas, and we very much want you to be a part of it. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. This is John Bush wishing you peace and freedom. Mm -hmm.